0: Welcome to the Tenant Podcast. I'm Todd Pearson here with my good friend and partner Wes Brown. Todd, it's good to see you, my friend. It's
1: another week out of the freezer. Out of the freezer. Oh my God! This weekend has been really nice compared to last weekend. So, wow, it's it's just uh, feel like we're making a turn. So, spring's just around the corner. For just a moment. (laughs) For For a moment, supposed to be
0: colder later. If you live in Texas, we're sorry.
1: Yeah, we feel bad for you. Holy
0: crap. Man, they've they've gotten hammered. So they have gotten hammered. And um, way to go, Ted Cruz. Way to be uh,
1: <laughs> poster boy.
0: Way to be the poster boy of what not to do. <laughs> you know what? I, I feel like I feel like the media dropped the ball on that. They should have give him like twenty-four hours into that news cycle and and then waited because I love to show that guy like in profile with his Texas sized gut, right? They should have waited until like 24 hours in when he's like on the beach with a big, you know, like tropical drink in his banana hammock. And then Smart, yep. right, yeah. that
1: would have been awesome. That'd have been awesome. Ah, Christy Noam's getting ready. Our governor's getting ready to go to Florida for the big Republican convention. So yeah, she'll get some rays. <laughs> it's good
0: for, her. Oh, I, I think Ted Cruz got a bad shake on the, on yeah. that deal. Actually. Because I feel like he probably doesn't know jack shit about um, power grids. I'll be mad. So, you know, his PR people have him out there like handing water to people, which is all great. But well, and been, like parading him around like power plants. You know, him doing the number where he's like talking to somebody important and acting right. like he understands what's going on. And maybe like looking like he's pushing buttons or something. Yeah. <laughs> that well, and been, like, he, but here's the other side of
1: it. He was using no electricity in Texas. So that was just more power in the grid. So...
0: Maybe he's just doing them a favor. Yep. Good point. All right. Enough <laughs> of Ted Cruz. God, why are we talking about him? I don't know. <laughs> God bless him. Everybody just vomited a little bit in their mouth when they thought about Ted Cruz in a banana hammock. No, I, that's hot. That is hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun today. Oh, my God. Sorry about that. If you felt that way, we'll stop talking about Ted Cruz. We're going to talk about art today. And we have a phenomenal artist. This week, we have Michael J. Dowling. He is an incredible artist based in Denver, Colorado. Michael, how are you?
2: Pretty well. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing excellent. Thanks. Thanks Thank for, for uh, us humoring traveling. us while we, uh, while we talk about stupid stuff.
2: No problem. I'll <laughs> always talk about stupid stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, I want to start this off. Sometimes I'll introduce an artist and I'll talk a little bit about the work, but I found that it's much better if the artist actually explains what they do and what mediums they work in. So can you tell our listeners what you do and what mediums?
2: So I actually work fairly traditionally, and especially when you consider how contemporary my work, I feel like my work looks pretty contemporary, but I studied in Italy and work in a lot of those traditions. So whether I'm drawing with charcoal or I'm painting with oil, I am working, you know, within my own kind of version of a lot of those traditions from, from the past. And even my sculpture is fairly traditionally based. And then I start to play with elements that are outside of those traditions and start to incorporate them. A lot of my work has, has kind of a figurative base or a base in, in what I call naturalism or reality. And so most everything is an object that we actually see in our world at some point, although some of them get a little bit more abstracted than others. All the people are very, very clearly people, although they as well get kind of uh, pushed away from their natural form in a lot of ways.
0: So it's, um, and I and I read this somewhere. It's it's kind of uh, redactive. Is that the word?
2: Yeah, especially when I'm in the beginning of a piece, more so for the painting than the drawing. But lately, the drawing's there too, and a lot of the time, I'm just using scribbling marks, kind of inappropriate paint marks to to be things that are about actually being paint and being drawing moments and to start to disrupt the image. And it is kind of redacted. It is kind of creating a secret out of the thing that we should know.
1: And you have a statement on your, on your artist statement. I I really like you say you have a historical approach that gives your work a look that of of a historical blend with a subject matter. That's hyper modernism or modern hyper modern. I thought that was really cool and, and very descriptive of what you're doing. So I like that a lot.
2: I thought that sounded really cool too. So. <laughs> so <I definitely laughs> That's just... why it's in
1: your own statement. <laughs> yes.
2: Um, and I wouldn't, like, hypermodern is just a really cool term. I don't know that I really fit into the idea of hypermodern because because my work always does look a little bit old. But the modern is starting to look very much at a, like, the most modern things are starting to look very much at a repetition or a circle of history and the dystopian sort of pattern, um, looking at how societies. Uh, form and crumble and form and crumble. And not only is art looking at that very much right now, but literature and, uh, and all the other art forms, movies especially. Uh, so it's an interesting time to be making work like this that even touches on those notions.
1: Yeah. Like you said, you got that classical look, but it, it really is kind of speaking to the times of now, as far as, you know, like you said, this dystopian kind of feeling and really fits in where I, I totally get that hyper modern uh, description, because I, yeah. I definitely feel that.
2: Yeah, cool. That's good yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else thinks so too.
0: <laughs> so thank you. You have a very interesting story. You're a creative kid, always it sounds like, but you didn't start this whole path to becoming you know where you're at today like people traditionally do. You had an interesting approach, and I want to hear that story if you if you wouldn't mind
2: not a problem. How far do you want me to go back
0: but, you know start start kind of at the beginning, but then um you I'm know start like, kindergarten
2: then okay. <laughs> um, so it actually really does start in kindergarten. And um, and although I don't remember it, my mom does describe that I was drawing all the time. And I don't know, maybe it's got to be like 15 years ago, I was going through stuff in my old house, my mom's house, and found a little prayer booklet that, because uh, I went to Catholic school, found a little booklet of all the prayers that all the students had made. And so we each drew a picture and then had a little prayer. And my prayer was to uh, St. Michael, the archangel, and it was, please help me have friends and draw well. And so I think, uh, I think I might've been obsessed real young. And then I don't really remember uh, that much of drawing. Although I know I did a lot uh, up until about fourth grade when I really did start to get obsessive with it. And I had a very odd fourth grade year and didn't really pay attention to my teacher at all, who was not my favorite teacher anyway. She thought I was nuts, but I spent the entire year drawing Garfield the Cat. All my classmates from back then, I still, you know, I live in the town that I grew up in. So I see a lot of those people. Uh, Not that often, but enough. And they all thought I was nuts that I was drawing like two or three times a day. I would be drawing Garfield the Cat and they would all come up to me and tell me how great it was. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. But I missed this part or I didn't do that right. And it had to be perfect. And so I did spend almost that entire year. And and I bet there are a thousand of them drawing Garfield the Cat and getting it perfect. But what that taught me was how to see and how to evaluate if something was, was or wasn't working and how to correct it if it wasn't. And it taught me to be very careful about drawing. And I really did learn the value of repetition in being an artist. I think repetition is one of the most valuable tools that we don't talk about in the learning of art as far as becoming a better artist, especially on the technical side. Um, So I drew Garfield for about a year. Um, As soon as I was done with that, I jumped into some of the regular kind of young boy stuff and I was drawing tanks and cars and uh soldiers and all that kind of guns and that kind of stuff and then by about sixth or maybe late sixth early seventh grade I wanted to see the human form more so I started with comic books and got pretty good at reproducing comic books and uh, and I remember one of my friends challenging me and saying oh you trace that and I was like no no I didn't look there are mistakes and I don't mind the mistakes and so um so even then I was drawing quite a bit and still obsessively And then I was kind of like, all right, I got to actually be able to draw people. And so I went and found some Playboys that I kind of like snuck out. I don't remember how I got them. And so that was what I was drawing for quite a while. And, you know, for me, it just seemed like the most normal, natural thing to be looking at the body as a reference. And then I went to high school and I went to an all boys kind of prep school for, uh, I don't know, just didn't have all the options of, actually, we didn't have an art class at all in the school. And so I didn't take any art classes, still drew all the time. Then went up to CSU for my first year of college, and I was kind of in an engineering, pre-engineering course, and just failed miserably, and was just the worst student, and had the best time. And uh, at one point, I sold my books for beer money, <laughs> 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 and that seemed, that seemed like the right choice because I wasn't going to those classes anyway. And so after a year of just, uh, of just flailing and just loving that I could just sort of break away from how hard it worked. In high school, and you know, even the jobs that I had in high school, it was a lot of work. So I kind of had a year off of just screwing around, and then I moved back down to Denver, moved into my mom's basement, and uh, and kind of got going with regular stuff. I had a job, and or a couple jobs actually, and um, started going to school, sort of part ish on and off at uh, CU Denver and Metro uh, Metro State, which is they're both downtown in Denver, and then was at CU in Colorado Springs and CU in Boulder as I kind of did different jobs here and there and for quite a few years. And then I can't remember if I was 24 or 25, but I needed to fulfill a requirement in the arts. So I decided to sign up for, or let me go back just a little bit. Uh, I did take a drawing class at Metro when I moved back down and I was still sort of a slacker. So I was 19 at that point and was studying with this uh, just amazing professor, Amy Metier. And my first semester I got a straight D and she was being very generous because I just didn't do all the work. And she was like, you're great at this. Why aren't you doing this? And I just couldn't understand how somebody could be an artist in the world, like how do artists make money and all that stuff. So I actually took another semester with her and she was kind of like, hey there, D student, welcome back. What are you doing? (laughs) I said, I I like doing this. And so I kept doing that a little bit and then dropped off for a while. And finally, I was about 25 and signed up for painting class. And I knew what I was doing when I signed up for it. And I was almost done with my philosophy degree at that point. And I knew that that was going to be the thing that I needed to do. But I kind of tricked myself into like a safe step into it. Just signed up for the class thinking it would fulfill the requirement. Within 10 minutes, I was ready to change my major. I talked to the professor and he basically, he was a very interesting art professor for me to have and just amazingly lucky that uh, that he had been a Marine, um, had a literature degree before uh, an art degree and was a great painter and had a system. And he was very organized and I'm a very organized person. I'm not as organized as I used to be. But everything got lined up the same way. My palette got lined up the same way every day. All the colors in the same order. The brushes went in the same place every day. And even the paintings went in the same order. And he told me that, you know, if you want to get a C in this semester, you're going to make about 50 paintings. And I was like, wow, you know, I actually get to be organized and work hard. And that's what an artist does. And so within 10 minutes of that class, I was ready to change my major. I talked to him about it. He told me he thought it was nuts. And uh, and I said, I'm doing that anyway. And so I ended up studying with him for a couple of years. And formalized some some of my basic painting skills there, and definitely a lot of drawing. I was already good at drawing, but I started studying figure drawing with him, and was taking two classes a semester of figure drawing. About that was for two or three semesters, and so really very focused. So then, kind of moved out of the jobs that I was working in, and ended up sort of strangely starting a corporate art consulting firm, and just a small firm with another with a, a business partner, and we basically just sold whatever we could into the corporate setting, to law offices and financial offices and things like that. And about a year and a half into that, I realized I wasn't doing what I should be doing. And really I needed to focus on painting. And I had spent a couple of weeks in Florence a few years prior, um, just on a little grant doing a painting study there. And there was something about that place that I knew that that was where I needed to push myself and formalize that thing. And I didn't really even know why so i kind of got myself organized i found a few schools that i wanted to look at didn't speak italian i spoke enough french that i could get by and i called my business partner on a monday and i told him that i needed to i needed to do this and that the business was his told him that on a monday bought a plane ticket left on a friday and just found myself in florence (laughs) and i was about 28 at that point the schools that i'd researched were all english-speaking schools And so I walked into the first one that I that kind of felt like it was going to be the right one. And just like my painting class, as soon as I walked in there, I knew that that was the place for me. So I signed up for the classes that I wanted. And I actually paid the tuition right then and there. And the tuition there was $900 for the semester. And yeah, just a totally different feeling than than dealing with schools in the States. So already it was feeling like something different for me. So I get signed up and um, the girl at the register desk, told me, okay, come back tomorrow, bring your supplies, you're gonna have your entrance exams. And I was like, what are you talking about entrance exams for for painting and drawing classes? It's like entrance exams, get yourself ready. So I come back the next day and I had to basically formally show that I could draw and paint and had the chops to do the work for the classes that I signed up for. And luckily I did give them the classes that I wanted. I ended up just luckily finding these two teachers who are still my mentors today. And then these two women from South Africa who had moved to who had moved to Italy, I think for a couple of reasons. I think they I don't know these the whole story, but I feel like they had to get out of uh, South Africa during apartheid times. And I'm pretty sure one of them was kind of involved in helping the population in Soweto um, push information around and uh, and start to create that revolutionary tactic. And so these are two white women in South Africa who I think had found themselves a little bit of a dangerous place and just wanted to get out. They're also gay and so I think Uh, I think that was probably not real uh, kosher with the uh, apartheid government at that point. So they ended up in Italy, Um, just amazing, amazing teachers, really great focus on the technical aspects of making art and the history of that. And a really good understanding of why Florence is the base of what we're doing today and in the art that we're making today. Um, um, Just, you know, all the Renaissance and how it and how it kind of permeated out from there, but also a really, really strong theory base. There's amazing art coming out of South Africa, both in both the visual side of it, but the thematic side of it. And they brought that with them. They are definitely a big part of that. And so those themes, those ideas, and the, the current conversation, the, the current cultural conversation came with them and what's going on in the world as far as, um, as far as art theory, as far as social theory. And so that was something that started to really plug into my work in a very, very heavy way. So I ended up there for a while longer than I expected to be. I kind of planned to be there six months. I ended up staying a few extra months and then a few extra months <laughs> and then came back to the States for a short time, uh, went back there and stayed there again. You know, I was expecting to be there about six months and I stayed an extra couple months and an extra couple months. And so all in all, I ended up there about two and a half years and just had amazing jobs and amazing experiences while I was there and, uh, and got to like work in the Gucci store for a while. and. Uh, and got all these fancy clothes from that and and yeah just an amazing experience and then eventually I moved back to the states and I kind of came back to explore a relationship with a girl that I'd been on off with for a long time and as soon as I moved back with all my philosophy books and everything she was doing her master's at DU and uh she was reading one of my one of the books that I would brought back in one of the coffee shops and some guy walked up to her and started talking to her about it and he ended up being uh he might have been the writer of one of the writers of the book but he's one of the world's foremost experts on this group of philosophers Derrida and uh, Baudrillard and all these guys and he was a professor at DU at that point and so she meets him and as soon as she met him I think she knew they had a connection and so she's like oh yeah I, I know you've been back for a couple of weeks uh, but I met somebody and I think I need to explore this and I was like all right whatever you know and I moved back into my mom's basement again and somehow at 31 I maybe 30 yeah I was about 31 I was like this is perfectly normal to move back into my mom's basement at this age <laughs> and, um, and that worked out fine. My mom totally rocks. But yeah, she ended up with him and they have this beautiful relationship and a wonderful kid. And, uh, and I think they live like half their year in Brussels and the other half in, uh, in maybe Indianapolis or someplace like that. And so I just kind of reformulated what, what I was going to do with my life, knowing that I was going to be an artist for one. And started just to put the pieces together. Um, eventually, I went and I've known my wife since we were very young. And so eventually I went and kind of found out, found her where she worked and I was pretty sure she was single and just kind of asked her, you know, she was working and I kind of walked into her, uh, her store, and just kind of said, what are you doing? And, um, and we, I went to a party at her house that night and ended up hanging out with her that night. And we've just been together ever since.
1: Nice. Yeah. Right on, man. So one of the things I want to ask you is, you know, since you had a degree in philosophy or are working on a degree in philosophy, how much does philosophy and what you learned play into your, your art? You think,
2: you know, I don't know. Um, it's something that's pretty heavily ingrained in how I think. So it feels like second nature that it, that it plays in there somehow, but at the same time, when I start a piece, I don't start it based on an idea. I it based on a visual. And so it's a little bit more of an intuitive start. And a lot of the time, these pieces do evolve into being something that, that does fit into my theory base and my ideas in, in philosophy. And uh, And I wouldn't say I'm, I'm a ph- philosophical thinker. Um, I'm definitely interested in those writings. I don't read them as much as I used to because they're really boring. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff as far as evaluating where we are in the world. And I think... Uh, and I think it plays in my work, but it's not the informer of my work. Right. And then a lot of the time, I see the work kind of evolving into something that that does very clearly have a theme that um, that attaches to a lot of my more uh, specific notions in there. And and one of those very specific notions is playing with the repetition of story and the repetition, like what I was describing earlier, the circle of of society that um, it comes back and comes back over and over. And one of those things that comes back over and over is the God stories and the lores and the, and the legends and things like that. Especially early on uh, when I moved back to the States, I was making work that was very directly looking at how, um, how I could start to create a new, what would I call it? kind of a new group of, uh, of legends for this place that we are in the West. Um, in the Americas, that's so new. And we didn't take, as, as a society, we didn't take the God stories that were here before us. We uh, we put our own on top of it, like as a, as a culture. Right. Uh, and, and erased the other ones, which is, this is one of the first times in history that that's happened. So I started wanting to look at God stories that kind of did incorporate themselves into the nature of our land. So the buffalo became a big symbol for me. And the birds that we have here became a big symbol for me. Um, Even the horse became a big symbol for me. And a lot of those things still play into my work pretty often. Yeah, And this is 15 years ago that I was dealing with that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it just never went away after that.
0: Right, right. When you were in Florence, what was that like being there? And were you painting every single day? Very structured education?
2: Um, No, I wasn't painting every single day. Um, I was painting six days a week. And it wasn't because... The educational programming was that structured. It was because I was. I do have a little bit of an obsessive nature about the things that I'm really going after. That I was spending, you know, 10 hours a day in the studio six days a week was not strange to me. Um, everybody else around me, I didn't realize it until way later on, but they all thought I was was really just like some sort of juggernaut about it. Um, but it just felt like, like that was very comfortable for me. I worked usually not more than maybe 20 hours a week and just odd jobs. I was a tour guide for english speakers for a little bit so i got to know florence in a really interesting way um like i said i worked in the in the fashion stores a little bit and i actually worked for a company that set us up trying on clothes for the very wealthy japanese tourists that came through so that they wouldn't have to try them on or usually it was the women shopping for the men and the men wouldn't even be there so so this group of us actually professionally tried on clothes for these japanese women who uh who wanted to uh Buy clothes for their for their husbands. <laughs> and it was more of an entertainment <laughs> tactic. than anything else, but it was a really fun job. And I was all I was skinny and tall and looked very Italian at that point, and so uh, so I had the right look for that. And yeah, that was a fun job because we would just pour champagne and hang out and put on clothes. That's awesome. <laughs> like leave the we would leave the dress room open just a little bit so that they could like see that we had our shirt off or whatever, and they'd ah. giggle. And it was the same thing over and over, but it was really cool. It was a really cool gig.
0: Oh, that is awesome! I love yeah. that. So, sounds like a really interesting experience, man.
2: It was it was fascinating, and man, they pay well. Like that was a that was a strange experience to be paid to do that at all, and then to be given that much money to to do that strange thing. It was super fun. Um,
0: I think your work is just phenomenal. Like, there's no there's no gray area there. Like, I don't think you even need to understand, you know, good art or what good art is. If you're just a layman and you looked at your stuff, you'd be like, well, this is it. You know, this is, this is what art is. I feel like there's a little bit of a dark sense of humor that runs through your art. Do you have a dark sense of humor?
2: Totally. <laughs> um, My work has a darkness to it no matter what. And I'm not sure exactly why, but I'm definitely not afraid of that side of myself. Um, But I also recognized some time ago that I was missing a little bit of the humor that I needed to have in the world. Um, And I always had that humor as a person, but it wasn't coming through in my work enough. And so one of the things that I started to do was really play with how I was talking about the work and the titles. And, uh, And so a lot of the titles really did take that dark work and created kind of a comedic, at least breath of fresh air next to it and still one of my favorites is an image of a, it's a large charcoal drawing and it's based on maybe a Rubens or something. And it's a woman holding a mask um, and the mask is totally obscuring her face. And then I've spray painted a blue smiley face on it. And the title of that one is uh, terribly good at, ha- at pretending I'm happy to see you. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, one of my favorites for some reason.
0: Yeah, uh, I do love some of those titles that I've seen on some of those pieces on your website and, and then on Instagram. The other thing I kind of noticed with your work, I feel like you kind of, um, give the viewer, and and this is a sign of great art too, I think, but you give people like, like pieces of a puzzle and then you allow them to kind of, you know, discern it and, and put it together. Are you a puzzle person? Do you like puzzles?
2: I do actually. I, I'm not, I go up and down with it, but, uh. I would say I do at least a few Suducos a day. <laughs> and I really, it's, that's a place where my brain gets to actually rest and just concentrate on something that doesn't have any goal other than starting and stopping. And once it's done, you stop. But I also do like puzzles that are a bit more complex and, um, and figuring those things out. And I'm actually not good at ones that are complex, which is funny that I like them. But what that puzzle is for me and what comes out in my work about that is that I don't want to tell a whole story and I don't want to, I don't want to tell anything. All of my work is, to me, is about a question and a research and trying to understand, you know, especially when I look at the paintings and drawings that I have of humans, I want to find out why they're human. I don't want to tell you why they're human. And it's a way more interesting thing to have that puzzle in front of me and that question in front of me than it is to have the simple answer. I think the answer is really boring. I mean, when it comes down to it, I guess we're all just people anyway, but that question allows you to explore why and how, and you know, the qualities of each person. And in my case, each painting and each drawing to find that humanity. I love that.
0: What is your regular routine? Are you in your studio every day of the week?
2: Lately, I kind of am. And I I promised myself to take Sundays off and I'm doing a terrible job of it. I just want to hang out with my kids more. So I really do need to be more disciplined about making sure I take Sundays off and happy Sunday, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on, on your day <laughs> so, off with yeah. right, well, I was gonna be kids working right now.
2: I have, I have to deliver work up to Aspen in, in two days and I have to get all ready. So I was going to be working no matter what. This is a wonderful way to actually, uh, get some artwork done by talking with you guys and actually really just enjoying some time with other people, which I don't often get to do in my studio as far as my routine and everything's thrown off by COVID and I'm totally redefining, uh, especially on the macro side of things, what that routine is. But, uh, but I have what I would call a macro and a micro routine. The macro routine is looking at my overall body of work, my overall approach to work um, and also my schedule over a year. And so, and I'm very, very organized about being an artist and being um, in the business of being an artist for that matter. And, you know, I don't know if I mentioned before, but I actually have taught some kind of seminars on the business of being an artist. And it's been a very interesting thing. If, if it's something you guys want to talk about it a little bit more later, but, um, so in December of every year, I start to, I start to put together my schedule for the next year. And one of the things that I understood pretty early on when I stopped doing any other sort of jobs, knew that I needed to be able to support my family and also knew that I needed, Certain things to drive me, and one of the things that drives me is actually being successful in the world as an artist and um, and making good money. I like my fancy things and I like my nice clothes and uh, and my big house and all that. And so, making good money is an important factor for me. And you know, from from way back in when I was making art, I knew that one of my goals was going to be to make a living as an artist. And I really do feel like that's one of the one of the revolutions of our time to not only have your own company have your own way of making your money but to do so by just making something that people want and to make something that i actually really want to make and that people will give me money for that i think it's an absolute revolution in the world to to be able to follow that passion and make a living doing that and the more i talk about it out in the world the more i realize that that's a part of my art the the being an artist um, just because it's such an inspiring thing for people to see that, you know, you can actually follow this and make something out of it. And, uh, and the people that do have a job that they consider maybe a regular job, I feel like they start to see the beauty and what they're doing more easily because, uh, because I talk about my job as a job and that it's just that passion that I follow. And it's a very interesting construct. Anyway, so I look at the macro, um, and I design out my year and I design out everything. I know when I'm going to have shows. And I know that to make the money that I need to make and to make the money in the cadence that I need to, um, because the world operates in a month to month bill pay sort of system, artists don't normally work in a month to month, I make this much money every month sort of system. So I actually had to design that for myself, I needed to be able to make enough money and make enough money on a consistent basis to make sure I could take care of the take care of the business. And so I started to realize that if I had a show every month, that I was selling and making a certain amount of money. And so if I bumped up how many shows per month I was doing, then I would probably make a little bit more money. And it's not like it's not one show I make a thousand, two shows I make two thousand. It's one show I make a thousand, two shows I make fifteen hundred, three shows I make seventeen fifty. And so it doesn't grow quite as easily. But definitely the more activity I have as far as showing the work, the more money I make. So I have to organize my year every year, knowing that I have a certain show in June and that's a repetitive thing. And I have that every June. So I can basically say, all right, I'll probably make about $10,000 that month. Um, Usually it's a little bit more on on the June show, but I plan on that. So we'll just keep on that show. So doing that show, I know that I need to have a certain inventory. I need to have this much of the $400 pieces and this much of the $10,000 pieces. And that way I have the mix of work, that makes it accessible for people to, if they want to buy something that's more substantial and they're really looking for a key piece of work, that that's available to them. And if they are if they just sort of stop by and find that they like my work a lot, they're not ready to spend of dollars, they can at least buy the four or five hundred dollar thing. And it's weird to make work to that market, but at the same time, it drives me to really explore my work in so many different ways and to allow myself to do things like very simple drawings and really make them a finished piece of work and make them part of my body of work rather than them just going on the floor as some sort of sketch. And it really has rounded out my work in a, in a really considerate way. So that's on the macro. Does that kind of answer that one?
0: Yeah. So it's a, it's a numbers game for you.
2: It is. And I actually base that numbers game at the end, at the beginning of the year, I say, okay, I want to make uh, like this year. I said, I want to make $150,000. How am I going to do that? And so I started to plan to make $150,000. I've never made my planning numbers, by the way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you have this formula that you work off of all the time in order to try to, uh, you know, accomplish that, right?
2: Yep. And this year, because of COVID, it has sort of just broken down and I don't know how to totally apply the formula anymore, which I really like. I'm really curious to see how I'm going to get sort of kicked in the gut here and, uh, and fix this broken system that I've got now. And it's going to be an interesting year.
1: Do you think the democratization of art today, because it seems like it's really open to the masses on different levels, allows artists of today to actually become working artists more so than maybe, let's say 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, or am I just totally reading into something?
2: One of the, well, I have a couple difficult things in being able to answer that well. And let me make sure I'm understanding the idea of the democratization of art.
1: In the sense that, you know, everybody can afford to buy art at some level or another, and people are actually purchasing art at different levels, so to speak.
2: That has definitely opened up the opportunity for artists to make money at art. And just because so many artists can explore it in a way other than the thing that goes into the museum and then people are safe spending a lot of money on it and they can make their living that way. Um, So that definitely has changed. There's so many different ways to make money as an artist today, Um, whether it's making small things and putting them on Etsy, uh, making prints and having high volume and lower cost, uh, making really good, really more costly work and having that uh, show up in the museums like like in that traditional setting. And most artists, uh, including me, have to have some combination of all those things at play. But as far as if it's changed since the 50s or even you know um, the turn of the century with the Impressionists and all that, I don't know because my perceptions are based on pretty limited kind of stories and the, mm. and the artists that we hear about that did find success. And so one of the things that I try to do is try to plug in how I see our world working today into how that would have worked then. And I think there was probably a lot of the same stuff going on then. Like, um, you know, you talk about, you talk about walking, uh, is it the Champs-Élysées in Paris where you see all the artists? Um, I think that was going on a hundred years ago. And I think there were a lot of artists that they sold a ton of work and probably made a lot of money. And we have never seen their work because it all went in the trash eventually. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, I think that the system of it is cyclical. I think that that system is something that hasn't changed that much. But we do have more opportunity for artists today with the internet and with all those things.
1: I think that what kind of clued me is to ask that question is when we hear people about, let's say, Van Gogh or whoever. A lot of times they're barely making it, and then you know you have Picasso that was kind of an outlier in a sense that he was making tons of money. You know, and,
2: and he wasn't he, the at, only one. No, he and Monet and and Pizarro and that whole crew they were doing yeah. quite well. Yeah, and they you know they had to fight tooth and nail to sort of create a school of their own to do that at the time. And I think that's a really interesting story too. And what happened with, what happened with, with impressionism was, you know, another one of those just magical revolutions in the world. Everything came together at the right time. The camera was there. These guys who wanted to paint differently were there and had the formal training and just, then just changed how we see in the world. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think, there is more opportunity for artists nowadays, um, and in a lot of ways, it's harder to deal with because we have so many more and weird expenses that we have to take on in the world. It's it all kind of balances, but yeah, it'd be really nice if somebody would just say, "All right, we're going to figure out a job for artists that they actually get to make their art, and we're going to make sure they get paid." <laughs> right?
1: I like wish that was the, like at the in the '30s when you know we had public oh, yeah, art
2: programs were yeah. were happening, yeah, the and, WPA
1: and stuff, yeah, yeah.
2: But even then, you know. Um, I think a lot of artists think about like, what a glorious time to be an artist because so many people got that, but it's the same percentage of artists who got those works programs uh, jobs as the artists that are making good money today. It's not like it was still, you still had to be a good artist. You still had to really go after it. You still had to be in that system of it. And it's, you know, it's not like all the artists got to work. Then it's right. just the same percentage. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. it, it One of the other things that I did in Florence that uh, I didn't mention (laughs) was, um, and again, I looked very Italian, so I didn't get bothered by the police. And if I hadn't looked Italian, you know, anybody who's trying to sell something on the street or busk or anything like that gets bugged by the police because they want Italians to make money. Totally legit um, that they, that they had that program in place. But I looked Italian enough and I would just sit there outside the Uffizi uh, drawing and like doing studies of the sculptures. And one day I'm sitting there drinking a beer, doing a drawing, and a tourist walks up and just says, "How much?" And the first day, I was like, "I was like, sorry, I don't sell these. You know, it's not that's not what I'm doing." And then I was like, "Oh, I need to pay my rent," <laughs> so I went right <laughs> down there and just sat in front of the Uffizi and started doing like some pretty nice sculpture, uh, drawings of the sculptures that are in that garden out there, or in that like covered area out there. And it wasn't very long before somebody walked up and said, "How much?" And I just—it was the lira back then; they weren't on the euro yet. And so I basically told them it was about a hundred bucks and uh in in whatever lira were it's like one point seven million lira or something. And they were just like, okay. And I was like, great, that's red, perfect. So I did that a lot. I would say a few days a week and made good money doing that. And that was a that was a fun, that was a fun system for making money,
0: for sure. Yeah. Was that eye opening for you?
2: I don't know. Like it seemed so natural that it wasn't that eye-opening. It was just like, Oh, of course I can do this. Of course, that's what should happen. Somebody should give me money for my art while I'm sitting here drawing at the Uffizi. But it must've been, you know, it, I must've realized that there was more opportunity out there, but I guess, I guess my need to pay my rent was more important than what I learned from it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you've always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit Of sorts. Yeah. I mean, you started your own business, your consulting business.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I mean,
0: Was that just a means to an end?
2: I'd say the entrepreneurial side was, was more based on my need not to do other bullshit jobs. Like I knew how I wanted to work. I knew I didn't want to work for people who weren't inspiring and kind of really great to be around. And so if I was going to do that, I was going to have to do it on my own or I was going to have to find just the right company or people to work with. Yeah, I mean, that entrepreneurial side, it does exist, but it's more. that's more there to support the other things that I wanted in the world, uh, whether that was the making of the art and making money doing that or not working for other kind of, I wouldn't say crappy people because they're not all crappy, but they're just not who I want to dedicate my time and energy to. But yeah, that entrepreneurial spirit, definitely, I did learn a lot from it, especially when I was developing the program for... The corporate art consulting thing. And I learned how to do business and learned how to make a business work. And a couple of things I learned were that you just have to get out and make sure that people know what you're doing and make sure that people know you're there. And one of the other things that I did was when I didn't have business, I would go downtown to a building and I would take the elevator to the top. I would walk the entire building and talk to everybody that I could possibly talk to about what I did. And it was it was a grind. but uh, But I figured out how to talk about my business and how to um, the strange thing is like, I talked to you guys fairly smoothly here. It taught me how to be social and be, and be just, just talkative. And it was something that I was not before that. I was very shy and very quiet. Most almost all growing up.
0: That's amazing. Cause I would never have guessed that. I would never have guessed that you're, that you were pretty introverted. You seem like a very extroverted person, but I know you can learn that sort of thing for sure.
2: It's definitely learned. And I also not only did I learn it, I learned to really enjoy it um, but you know when we get off of our uh off of our conference here today, I probably won't say a word for hours, and I will be perfectly happy with that. <laughs> 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 My kids might get annoyed with that, but I'll be good.
0: <laughs> it takes a lot out of you to you know to to talk with people i mean i i I will say this you know you'll probably be a little spent after talking to us for. An hour and a half, two hours, whatever we we do today. But I find it, um, a, it's energizing, like you said. But at the end of the day, I'm the same way. I'm like, you know, I'm happy to come home and not have to talk to people yeah. either.
2: <laughs> it's more energizing for me than not, and getting to talk about these things and and like getting to, even already now, getting to realize how magical my life is and how just incredible. It is that I get to do this. It just makes me want to work. And it makes me want to just get to work and make all the things and get them all out there, sell them. And so I can make more things and just keep exploring. So yeah, it's more energizing than anything.
0: Right on, man. Well, I thought it was interesting because I was reading this article that I found online and you were actually mentioning one of your mentors, Rose, and uh, she had asked you what you wanted your art to be about, and you said you didn't exactly know, but you knew that you wanted to make a living off of being an artist. That was exactly. And then, what she, I know. <laughs> and then she said that that was one of the stupidest things <laughs> that she had ever heard. <laughs> and yep. I thought that was beautiful. That was yeah. beautiful.
2: And yeah, Rose and Claire are they're they're like magic. I cannot believe that people like this exist in the world. Um, and Rose is. Uh, is one of those people who is just brilliant and so socially brilliant and just can like tear a person down in, in a couple words. That was one of the one things that I was just like, Rose, you are wrong. This is actually the thing I should be doing. But the funniest thing about it is that Rose, both Rose and Claire have these lovely kind of South African British accents. So whenever they say anything like that, it sounds so nice coming off their tongues and just this like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Michael. (laughs) Yep. So it sounds just like doubly cutting when when they get to say things like that. Um, But yeah, I actually told her, you know, she's wrong. That that is something that I'm supposed to be doing. That is actually a driver for me and a valid driver for me.
0: It's great to make art for art's sake and be, you know, have a creative outlet. But at the same time, if you want the freedom to do that, Art and money have to go hand in hand. And I think a lot of artists forget, forget that, right?
2: Yeah. Well, no, I don't think a lot of artists forget that. But we all struggle with this really broken system that's been put in front of us where the, the colleges where you learn art don't talk about this at all and don't even know how to because most of the people that are making money on art in their circle are making money by teaching art, not by making art. And so all these artists enter into this world without the tools to go after the business they need to go to, go after and thinking that we're not supposed to be talking about how we make money as artists because it detracts from the, the beauty of the art. Well, that's bullshit. Um, every time I get $10, it means that I get to go get another canvas and make another painting, and I get to explore further, and I get to keep doing this. That money is so important, and that is absolutely a valid driver for artists today. Make your living making art.
1: And I think a lot of artists don't want to talk about how they make money because they they see it as a zero-sum game. Like, there's only so much pie, and maybe if I share my my tricks of the trade, um, you know,
2: yeah. and, and yeah, maybe I I'm see, wrong. I, I can see getting trapped in that mentality um, and wanting to be careful about it. I'm not careful about that at all <laughs> uh, because I really believe that there are more people out there that want good art than are able to find it and um and i see enough people come through my studio and come through the shows and and i meet enough people who are looking to buy good art and just trying to find the right thing that if there were another 100 artists out there then somebody would be finally making the exact thing they're looking for
0: yeah yeah so i guess when i asked that question i said that's one of the things that artists forget i I guess it's more of a taboo thing where people just aren't open about talking about the fact that hey you need to make money as an artist in order to make this thing happen make this thing go you even more so because you have a family it's one thing if you're you know a single person you know and you just have to support your own your own life your own needs but when you have other people in the mix then that becomes a you know even a bigger responsibility right
2: yeah yeah it's and it's at the same time it's kind of a daunting responsibility but it's also a really beautiful responsibility to be able to not only make my way, but to take care of these people who mean everything to me by doing this thing that I love and seeing them sort of experience their lives in the beautiful ways that they can. And a couple of my kids are totally unimpressed that I'm an artist. And actually, all my kids are totally unimpressed that I'm an artist, but uh, but they get it too. Like they get to see that I live to, that I get to live the way I live. And I do work too much. I work probably 60 or 70 hours a week, but they get to see that. I really love what I do and that I'm happy and inspired when I get back to them and that I'm, and that I'm living a life that really means something to me in so many ways. And I think that, well, I hope that means a lot to them. I think it does.
1: And if it doesn't now, it will later.
0: Yeah, I absolutely. Think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And one of, one of my kids is showing, a lot of signs of being a lot like me. She's even more obsessive about making things. And one of the things that I hope that she's able to enter into it with if she decides to take a path like this is the realization that she's actually, um, she just sold her first painting, she's 12 years old. And she was taking a painting class with one of my friends and the model for the class has to buy the painting. And uh, so she sold her first painting. For her to have those tools in front of her, not only all the materials, which is one of the biggest obstacles to people figuring out how to be artists, but also to realize that if she just makes it and enough people see it, somebody's going to buy it. And in this case, the model saw it and she bought it. Um, Her starting to see that she can make her living that way and make her way that way. You know, if I would have realized that at at 12 or 15 years old, I I'm sure my path would have been different. I don't think it would have been as sort of glorious, weird and, and just so entertaining as it's been, but it might've like, I might be, you know, Picasso now, um, I don't regret my path by any means, but having those tools earlier on could have been interesting.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's easy to think about what could have been, but the reality of it is, and I think you do it well, you enjoy where you're at right now I do in this very moment, right? Yep. And the yeah, journey really? that it's, that's taking you here.
2: Yeah, even the struggles, even the really hard things. And I don't know why um, I have no regret in my life because I've always gone for the things that I've wanted, even when I've totally screwed them up. But I don't regret screwing those things up. I, the only things I've ever regretted were not going after those, not going after ideas, not going after the things I knew I wanted. So I don't have many regrets because I always went after them anyway. <laughs>
1: there you go. Well, um, and I think I think we live in a perfect time for that because you know it wasn't that long ago when I was a kid. It's like you if you failed, you're a failure. Now it's like fail, fail often and fail early, and uh, and learn from those failures. And I, I think that's a great thing to teach people, and not right. to be afraid of it, afraid of it. Yeah. The other thing I get from you, uh, just because you said this, and I think people need to hear this, and I'm a perfect example of someone who needs to hear this, is you work 60 hours a week or more, and that's the key to be successful is you're putting in the time. You're working your ass off. And it's yeah. not just painting, but it's selling and it's marketing and it's all that and the business side of it. And you know, I think it's easy for, for me to look at your stuff and say, Oh, that comes, it must come so easy. But you know, you're, you're really putting in the time and the effort and working your ass off.
2: So yeah, in a lot of that time I'm not really doing what I want to be doing. And I am doing stupid emails and getting in touch with somebody I need to get in touch with. And downloading artwork, and I hate that stuff. Um, and actually, I you know as much as my website, I think, looks fine, I haven't updated it in like six months. <laughs> I just hate doing it. Um, and I don't like being on Instagram, and I don't like being on Facebook. Um, I do like spying on other people on those forums. <laughs> but I don't want to deal with <laughs> So, yeah, it takes a lot of energy, and it takes a lot of phone calls, and it takes a lot of um, dealing with that. But at the same time, I'm dealing with people that I want to deal with, and I'm at least around my art. Um, And I will say, I find often that I'm not in the studio enough. I'm not actually making the art enough. And it gets really frustrating sometimes. Um, And I feel like I start to lose my touch and my skill set towards it. And even my ideas start to seem like they're fading away. And so sometimes I do have to kind of just like close everything off and lock up all the doors to my studio so nobody can walk in and just make for a while. And it's the funniest thing that when I do that, I always make the worst crap and it's like, sentimental (laughs) and just sort of and just sort of like pretending that I'm an artist and then as soon as I get back to work and work is dealing with all that crap and then getting 10 minutes in front of the easel or 10 minutes uh on the drawing table and actually just like getting through that part of that painting because I know what I want to do with it um because I've been sitting there looking at it while I do all the other stuff and so I get 10 minutes with it and I make it and that's the magical 10 minutes that it actually comes together so the way I work is really interesting. And this gets back to where we were before the kind of micro of how I work. And so I usually get to the studio and I kind of do some reading, dollar around a little bit. I usually clean something up because that gets me into kind of a work mode in my head. And then I just sort of sit there in front of my work until I realize that I'm being so stupid to not just get up and work that I get up and just start making marks and start dealing with, Uh, whatever paintings in front of me. And a lot of the time, what I'm dealing with in a painting in front of me is fixing the problems. I make a painting to a level that I have to go and figure out how to fix it. And then I fix it. And then that ruins something else. And I just keep working through it. Same thing with drawing.
0: That's an interesting routine. You almost have to, you have like a certain thing that gets you in the right headspace in order to start working. You have to kind of ease into it
2: um not even a little bit i don't have to ease into it Um, as soon as i walk into the studio and actually even before i'm in the studio i'm already thinking through what my pieces need to come together and what i need to work on and so i'm kind of already there Um, that idea of being mentally ready to do the work it's it's strange to me because i'm always ready to do the work if i have a if i have a piece of charcoal and a piece of paper in front of me i can make a drawing and it doesn't matter if i'm if i'm fall down drunk or just woke up or, um, or I'm on an airplane. It doesn't matter. I can always make a piece of art.
0: You said when you come in though, that you kind of,
2: I do have that routine because I'm a procrastinator. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm a little bit lazy, <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you, want but you're crazy. not lazy. If you're working no. 60, 70 hours a week, that's not laziness in my book.
2: I want to be lazy and I want to not like always be after my work and kind of like have an easier life, but that is actually my easy life. Anyway, I have a lazy side to me that just wants to sit down and relax for a while. So I let myself do that a little bit and just look at my work and build up. I could, if, if I'm rushed, if I feel like I've got a ton of crap to do, which often I do, I can walk into the studio and I don't even take my coat off and I pick up a brush and I'm working. Um, that's not often though. I usually want to, I usually want to just enjoy my time here and, believe that I have enough time to get the shows that done that I never get all the work done for. So,
1: I struggle Sorry. with that too, though. I struggle with the whole procrastination thing. You know, I have the great idea of maybe starting um, editing this podcast tonight or tomorrow night, but it'll probably be Tuesday because then I'm up against the wall. You know, so yep. there's that side. I went and shot um, some buffalo last weekend, and they're still in. They're still in my camera, and I need to go and you know do some editing and and produce something. Yep. But you know. And last night I sat and watched a couple documentaries. And so I was lazy and procrastinating.
2: <laughs> and you can always tell yourself that you were doing research and you were focusing <laughs> on how you work. There you go. You know, that's the, those are actually, that's the other thing. That's a huge motivator that people sort of want to think it's a taboo motivator or something. And that is a deadline. A deadline is one of the best things you can have to just get the shit done. Yeah. Uh, it's a you good know, kick in
0: the ass, right?
2: Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and, you know, I've got a Tuesday deadline to have all this work ready for Aspen. And I'm going to spend the rest of today and all of tomorrow just working my ass off getting these paintings to where I feel like they're ready to go. And then they're going to be wet when I bring them into the gallery, which is kind of always the case with me. And yeah, it's, it's, my, it's one of my biggest motivators is that fear of not having a good show and the deadline of when I have to deliver the work.
0: So in addition to this other routine, are you usually typically when you lock down your studio and you're just working, are you working in silence? Do you play music? What do you do? I
2: play music pretty often and I have an embarrassing uh, sort of cachet of things that I listen to. (laughs) Um, But they're pretty funny. And I definitely like recent musicals I love. So Les Miserables and uh, Hamilton, I'm just enamored with. So I'll listen to those some. I won't usually listen to those without uh, headphones on because I don't want all my studio mates realizing that I listen to that. (laughs) And now they're going to find out. So thanks a lot, guys. (laughs) 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 So I'll listen to those. And then I listen to Post Malone a lot. And I actually think that he is a really, really interesting artist. He's almost like Lady Gaga to me, but I like the sound of what he does more. Um, he's really created a persona and everything and then makes really, really compelling story within his work that is a lot like mine, that it doesn't really tell you exactly what it is, but it tells you a little bit of a story. It tells you about a moment. Um, so I listened to him a bit, but the one thing that I listen to all the time, and I was actually listening to it right before I got on with you guys, is the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack from about, I don't know, it's like 20 years old with Claire Danes and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, it goes back to my obsessive nature. There are certain there are certain shows, movies, um, albums that I'll listen to all the time. And that's an album that I've actually been listening to now. It must be close to 14 years that I've been listening to that just over and over. And yeah, I don't know why. It's just like I never get sick of it. And it's always the right sound for me. And it's got the, just the right combination of um, kind of a driving beat and interesting ideas within the music. And I don't know how it's, I don't know how I'm still doing that. It seems like the weirdest thing in the world, but I listen to that over and over.
0: It just puts you in a place where you want to be. Right. So why change it up?
2: I guess so. Um, Yeah. It's not even a comfort thing for me. It's just the right thing. That's, and it is an album that actually has this edge to it. um, Just like that movie did. Uh, this new way of looking at that old story. And mm-hmm. so the album that has this edge to it, but also has a beauty to it throughout and each, and each piece of it has a beauty to it. Except for one song, one song drives me nuts. <laughs> I'll make that. Problem.
1: It's, it's a great soundtrack, but I, really when, when I, uh, when I thought you said like these guilty pleasure kind of thing, I, I was expecting like Donna summer or <laughs> cool in <and> a <the> gang <laughs> I, or something like that. But
2: uh, yeah, and, no.
0: <laughs> so in those days, obviously you're on a deadline now for this Aspen show that you have coming up. When you're not on a deadline and you're not necessarily feeling inspired, how do you work through those moments? What do you do?
2: Other than a few months of COVID where I wasn't sure what was going on as far as shows canceling and, uh, and that sort of thing. Even in that time, clients started coming forward and just wanting art. And so the deadlines came back and I am always on a deadline. So there's no time that I'm not dealing with that. I have uh, six drawings due for a client in Texas about two weeks ago. I have eight drawings due for a gallery in uh, Miami about two weeks ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they're like, they're both uh, groups that understand uh, They're people that I talk to. And I'm like, this is what we're aiming for. I'm never on deadline unless like we have a show opening that I'm that I'm on deadline and I get it done. Um, But that's what I'm aiming for. So I was aiming for the 15th of this month for both those projects and they're coming together. I put those aside so that I could focus on the gallery thing that I'm running downtown um, and put a little bit of energy into that. And so that I could get a couple other pieces done for clients that did have tighter deadlines. Um, But I've got those going. I've got a piece going to a hotel in the next two weeks. I've got, um, I've got another show opening and this was actually a really nice way to breathe at that gallery downtown it's a month of photography next month. So, the main two spaces in that gallery have photographers. And then, the other guy that I set that situation up with, Brett Matarazzo, he and I are doing a group show or a dual show in which we're not going to have any of the work done when we open the show. It's going to be an opening of blank canvases. And then, over the month, we're going to allow people to come in and just watch what we do um, as if that's our working studio. So, we're going to make that our working studio and then create the show that opens at the end of the month. That's so, crazy.
1: That's a great idea. I love that
2: it's something I've kind of played with before. And I really, really like it. I really like allowing people to see how I make my work and kind of interact and have, and have a personal knowledge and a personal, um, kind of ownership of, of like that, that touch of seeing how I'm working. Um, and I'm funny about it. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not precious about my work at all. So people will come in and they'll be like, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, pick up the brush and I'll show you. And, uh, and so, you know, I have plenty of paintings that, some five-year-old kid, or some, or somebody who just walked in off the street has made some marks on and stuff, and I always make them make sure they look right. In the end, so a lot of those are weird, but at least they get to like play with that and kind of explore how that works. So that's coming up, and then I have another show with another dual show with my friend Jess, and she is a leather artist actually, and so we're doing this pretty crazy look at gender roles plugged into the characters of Marie Antoinette and Napoleon Bonaparte, these sort of uh, fallen anti-heroes that, uh, that are so important in our history. And so that's coming up in April. And then May, I'm actually kind of taking the month off to get ready for two shows in June, and then two, two shows in July, and then two in August, and then one in September, and then I get October off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, so, you are really, really busy then. You have a yeah. lot packed in there.
2: Yeah. And the one thing I think a lot of people and even when I'm explaining it to my wife who knows what I do pretty well, but everybody has this perception that if I have a show, I'm making, you know, 30 new pieces for the show and I have to get those 30 pieces done and then I'm also working on something else and I have to get that done. But it's all kind of this circle of stuff and if I have a show, like I have pieces that are going up to Aspen that I've had for a year or two years. And I also have pieces that are going to be freshly painted. And so it's really the combination of those things. I only have to make about 10 things for the show in Aspen, but I'll still have 30 things to take up there. And some of them are very simple. Some of the drawings come together in, in literally minutes. Wow. And, um, and actually some of the paintings can come together really fast too, if I leave them really raw. So it's really a, a broad combination of, of all these different objects and approaches to those objects. So it can be quite diverse. And then when I'm making those, I'm also making something else that might not go to that show and so it's going to end up going to the other show. And so everything kind of is just in this pretty healthy circle of just getting made.
1: Yeah. And can you jump from, from drawing to painting to, you know, multiple pieces in a course of a day?
2: Yeah. There's not a day that I'm in the studio that I'm not doing both drawing and painting. I want to get back to sculpture. I haven't set up my studio for sculpture yet, but, uh, but that will be necessary soon. And sculpture isn't something that I'm as focused on. So it'll probably just be like a couple of days a week. I'll make sure I'm, I'm working on a sculpture. But um, it's all the same when I'm making my things. It doesn't matter if I'm using duct tape or oil paint. It's all just making a thing.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. I, br- I was talking over you. What did you say at the very end?
2: I said I don't use duct tape very often anymore. But for a while I was making, because I make this series of, of books that I uh, actually um, alter the books so they're, they turn into drawing surface. And early on making those, I was using duct tape as one of the things that went into those books as a as part of the subject matter, um, because it was a very interesting aesthetic to me. And at the same time, it is the symbol of how, especially guys in our society, fix everything. And I loved using that symbol uh, within the work. Boy, I'm getting back to that. I'm glad I talked to you guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, do you put like a gesso or something over over the pages of the book? Is it something?
2: I'm actually sitting at the table where all these are. So this is one right here. And you can see it's all white now. But this is the back of the book and I leave the back of the book exposed and this one is Political Parties in the United States by Martin Van Buren. Most of the ones I use, um I try to find recent political memoirs um because doesn't matter what side you're on, doesn't matter who it's by, even if they're pretty thoughtful authors, for the most part it's all just a bunch of dribble and so I want to actually make something beautiful out of these things that are propaganda and kind of just crap. And books are such an important part of our world that I do feel like they can be an interesting part of um, an interesting part of looking at the world in a different way and through the visual. And it's a really interesting thing to draw on. It gives me problems in approaching whatever it is I'm drawing because I've got this surface that doesn't quite work. And this split in the middle of the surface that uh, doesn't accept my charcoal very well. And so it gives me new problems to fix and new things to explore in my drawing.
1: Oh, that's, that's incredible. I love the whole idea of repurposing, you know, books that would end up in a landfill or whatever, and you're saying they're repurposing them. And it leads me to a piece that I saw of yours. And I want to talk about real briefly is, uh, it's, it's six books stacked and there's a sculpture of a horse and then it's strapped down with a yellow strap that you would do for cargo on a truck. Right. Um, did you do the horse? First of all, did you do the horse sculpture included in that?
2: I have a couple of those and one time I did actually build the horse sculpture and I didn't find it to be quite to the level that I needed it. And so the other two, one is a, is a like resin horse sculpture that I found at TJ Maxx and it was broken. And so I kind of, I made some adjustments to that and then added a few different things. And then that one got pure blue, uh, like cobalt blue pigment, uh, painting pigment, just kind of dusted over the whole thing. And that ended up being my favorite of them. And then another one is um, is a stack of the horses. And then on the book is actually drawn a sort of reflection of the horse that's on top. And that horse is a, is a Barbie toy horse. So I've taken that Barbie toy and I resurfaced it with, uh, with cold wax and paint. And so I really did do some fun stuff with it. That's a series that I'm doing. And I, I, le- I work in a lot of kind of odd series like that. But yeah, like the next exploration of the horse I want to start making the horses and those are very interesting. Uh, That form is very interesting for me, but I'm also doing the show with Jess Davis in April that I was mentioning. And one of the, one of the pieces for the show is um, is a group of these Barbie horses that are all going to hang from the ceiling and just kind of hang down like pendulums and swing free. And I'm going to rework the surfaces of all the toy horses, but they are otherwise going to be just found object.
1: Nice. I love that. That is phenomenal. And so I have, just because I can't wrap my brain around it. So what's the deal with the strap?
2: Um, It's a lot like the duct tape, actually. It is, um, it's something outside of my natural aesthetic, which is kind of that Renaissance aesthetic that pushes me to, to take it on in a different way. And the use of it, the use of safety yellow as the color of that is really jarring for me. And I really like that I'm having to use something that, or I'm, pushing myself to use something that's so far outside of the aesthetics that I usually play with. And then at the same time, it is creating this stack of books that's very much like that old 50s picture of the kid walking to school with a stack of books tied together. And in this case, I'm just doing it with a utilitarian object, a toe strap.
1: Yeah. And I looked at, I saw that and I was like, oh my God, that is so cool. I just love everything about it. I And like I said, I couldn't necessarily wrap my head around why you would use the strap. And now that you've Explained it. I, I totally get it, and I think it's fantastic. So I love that
2: piece. And that's one of the things. Like I was saying before, a lot of my work comes together as an, as an aesthetic notion, not as a thematic notion. And that was an idea that I had just based on the visual. And I don't know why, but I get these ideas in my head. And I was, and you know, to have the conversation in my head of, oh, I really need a toe strap for this book sculpture is one of the stupidest things you could ever say to yourself. <laughs> so I went to Home Depot and I got my toe straps, and like I had to drag them through the dirt because I wanted them to look used. And I mean what a strange construct for a sculpture but it I don't know it's just sort of it is one of those things that I'm just compelled to make.
0: Yeah. And I think great. it works. I think it works. I love it.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Since we're talking about work um Wes and I were both commiserating on different things that we saw on Instagram and um and then on your website but there's a piece that we both really enjoyed. And I'm curious if you if you've sold it. Yeah, yeah. called Gladiator.
2: And the one you probably saw on the website is the original. And then I did a second one on canvas. Um, I wanted to re-explore that and not only see if I could pull it off with the same level of beauty the second time. And I wouldn't say that I pulled it off quite as well, but it's still pretty strong. But I also wanted to start to explore that as series. And, um, and that boxing thing theme comes into my work a lot. But Gladiator, I made in probably like, I don't know, 2016 or 17. And it's a big piece. It's like eight feet tall. And it had very specific ideas. I had very specific ideas about what I wanted out of that piece. I knew I wanted to draw a naked chick. Um, and I say I wanted to draw a naked chick because I wanted to explore the female form. Um, but I also wanted it to be a very valid thing as far as what that person was in the world. And so I had to choose somebody that wasn't overly muscular, but was tough. And I also had to choose somebody who had the right look on their face, that, uh, that she looked like she could kick my ass. And then I made it way bigger than me. Um, so that being eight feet tall, that person, if they existed in the world, would be like a nine and a half, ten 10 foot tall person. And all of those factors were really important to me in my exploration of it. But again, I'm not exactly sure what the piece was about overall or is about. Um, so I made that many, many years ago and I had it with me for all those years and just nobody ever bought it. And it was the strangest thing. It wasn't terribly expensive either. And finally, a collector who I'd known for a long time um, she, and one of the, weir- one of the funny things that I did was as it didn't sell, it started to become more important to me. So, you know, five years ago, somebody asked me how much it was and I said, you know, $2,000. And then, uh, more recently somebody would ask and I was like, uh, $5,000. And then um, very recently, I was like, I really like this piece. And if anybody wants it, they got to really want it. So I was like $12,000, <laughs> which is way too much for that piece. Actually. So one of my collectors came and she said, Michael, do you still have that? And we talked about it a long time ago. And I am dealing with breast cancer, and I need a champion. And that's my champion. And I was, I said, my God, of course, you can have that and just tell me how much you want to pay for it. And that it's yours. And so I could not have been happier to see that go to a person that, you know, it really meant that to them. And to be to be able to be a part of that circle of having made something that, that inspires them in that way was like, you know, holy shit, I actually did something right. That's amazing. And um, yeah, just a whole really amazing experience with a piece in every way, but yeah, it finally sold after years and years.
0: That's, That's awesome. a phenomenal story, man. Yeah, It's funny how we both kind of gravitated to that and it, and it is, it's the strength of her. It's not just because, you know, she's beautiful and she is beautiful but there is a strength to it, and it just—it's—it's uh, it's very arresting. I—I th- I thought. I don't know yeah. what—what was—what was it for you?
1: Well, I think part of it is—it's a woman form, and I love that. And it's kind of a juxtaposition in a sense. She's topless, but she's wearing boxing gloves, so that gives it some kind of unique feel to it. But she also exudes a lot of strength and power in it even though she like you said she's not muscular but there's something very and and i would love to see had seen the piece being eight foot tall because i didn't know it was that tall i mean she just has this powerful look to her like she's a woman with determination and power
2: yeah and uh, and it was very important to me to be able to communicate that through the eyes through the set of the Mm -hmm. jaw those those more subtle things um yeah. this is one of the ones that I make every time I make something and look at it, and I pull it off. I'm like, holy shit, I just did that. And this was a big one. Every time I saw it, I was like, holy crap, like I actually got to do that, which is I, I don't know if artists are supposed to reveal. They get to have that feeling every time, every time they make something, but every time I pull it off, I'm like, wow, I actually did it.
1: Yeah, I have a few things I've created that sometimes I look at and I go, "Wow, I can't believe I did that," or it turned out exactly what I wanted. But you know, and and she's such a beautiful woman, and I and aesthetically pleasing to look at as well. So yeah, yeah you knocked it out of the park on that one. I w- I just love that one. And yeah, I, I was you when you said ones. I sold it, I was like a little crushed, but
0: <laughs> but the story is so spectacular. Like, is. I think that's a phenomenal story. So. And it couldn't go
1: to a better person—somebody who's struggling with breast cancer—and uh, she's that's her power person, man. I love that.
2: Yeah, it really is. It makes me very happy to think of
0: that for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> the show that opens up in Aspen—what, what, where is that going to be at, Michael?
2: At a space called the Red Brick Art Center, and that show is a dual show with my friend Annie DeCamp, who a couple years ago she. Uh, she just came into one of my shows and I can't remember which one she basically just walked up to me and she's like, I think I need to study with you. <laughs> and I kind of said, okay, uh, what are you doing now? And what do you want to do? And I teach a little bit. Uh, I teach for our students league now and again, and um, and I've taught out of my studio a little bit. I'm pretty specific about who I'll work with. I really want to be around other artists who are, who are searching, who are really dedicated and who are, uh, and who are very creative. Um, it doesn't matter how they make things um, and it doesn't matter what materials they use, um, but if they have the creative draw and if they have the, the I don't know, just the dedication and the go-and-fucking-get-it attitude that I've got, I want to be around those people. And she does. So Annie um, kind of set up the show in Red Brick. At Red Brick, they wanted us to really explore, as a show, our relationship as kind of a mentor-mentee. And, and so we started to put together a more thoughtful show uh, kind of midway through last year. And then of course they were like, okay, great shows canceled. (laughs) Um, and so we figured, you know, just, we just get back to it at some point. And so then they were like, okay, we look, it looks like we have a window, um, early 2021, and we'd like to get you in there. And we were like, okay, we'll start to make work for that. And then they said, Oh, sorry, it's postponed. So we put it all away and then kind of got a call way too late in the game <laughs> and they were like okay we got you rescheduled it's opening three weeks later than we were talking about <laughs> so we've had to scramble a little bit uh still made a really really cool show um and, but it just it doesn't talk as much to that relationship as it just does to the work that we're making and you can see the tie-ins in our work but it's not as specific about that uh about that kind of learning atmosphere that we've created between each other but still really cool show that i think we've got coming up
0: I, you know, seeing both your work in person and Annie's, um, that would be a great show. I might, I might have to see if I can get up to, how long does it run?
2: It's about a two month run and it opens on March 4th.
0: Okay. Yeah. I might have to make a trip to Aspen to check that out. Cause it sounds spectacular and it's always nice to go to Aspen. So I haven't been there in a long time. Yeah. I'm
2: excited to get up there again.
0: Yeah, it's um it's really changed a lot in the last couple three years, it seems like. Um, and then talk about this gallery space that you have down off Plath Street there.
2: Oh yeah. That's uh that's another really interesting one. Um it's really it's fascinating to me just to like be out in the world and things fall into my lap all the time. And I think a lot of artists experience that just because we're I don't know, our eyes are always open to it or Like something seems like an opportunity and we're gonna figure out a creative way to deal with it. This one, uh, my friend Brett uh, kind of knows the people that own the building and has known them for a while and started talking to him about just wanting to do something. And they were pretty jazzed about just getting something happening in this building. And it's a beautiful, beautiful space. Um, It looks a lot like my studio. It's got the kind of rawness to it. And like the floors are just plywood and a hundred year old brick is part of it. And then there's more recent construction um and the building owners just kind of wanted us to do something cool cuz it's been un- unoccupied for a while and again you know it's weird times with covid and so we started talking to him or Brett really started talking to him and we started to figure out that we could do a uh, that we could do several months of programming and they essentially granted us the space and allowed us to just take it over as we needed to the first show we put up is called wild wild and that's what's up currently And that show is an invitational kind of, it has a couple sort of secondary themes, but the core theme to it is based on a show that I did last year called True West. Sort of the same thing I found, I found a space that was just beautiful to have this show and everything came together. And True West was designed to be a very contemporary, very local look at what's happening in the art world in kind of conjunction with the timing of the stock show and really looking at who we are as a Western culture and responding to that in the, in the contemporary art kind of way. Um, this year came together to be a way more Western-looking show, way more cowboy theme, um, Western animal theme. Um, it's very heavy in this year's, but it's still a very contemporarily driven and really uh, experimental-feeling show. So when I curated the show, and same thing as last year, I'm not real good at curating shows. <laughs> so, and I know that. I don't like doing it. It's, um, it's not the fun side of being an artist. And so I tried to figure out what would be the fun way to do it um, because I knew I wanted good art for the show and I knew I wanted certain artists. And so instead of curating the work, I just curated the artists. I just invited artists who I felt like not only did I want to be around and work with, but that I wanted their work in there. And I told them what the theme was, just considering your place in the West. And some artists took that on as really wanting to make something that had the symbols of the West in it. And some artists just said, you know what? I am standing on the ground in the West and that is my entire connection and my work's gonna be whatever it is. And it worked out beautifully. Um, And I just told the artists, you know, that's the theme. Bring your good stuff. And they all did. Everybody made incredible work for for these shows. One of the other things that I really wanted to do with this and it's a little bit of a hidden theme that I wanted to put out in the world. It's that, especially curatorially, Too many galleries and too many shows are so careful and so precious. And so I really wanted to break away from that. And so the range of artists that I invited were everybody from uh, people like me who are showing in museums and galleries and all that kind of stuff, to people who have never shown a piece of art in their life. As long as they were gonna be bringing a great piece of art and really bringing something solid, I wanted to include them in the conversation. And it made for a very, very well-rounded, very exploratory body of work. And where you see a lot of the more accomplished artists putting in a great painting, you would miss out on the range of work that can come from somebody who, for their art, they're making a dress or they're hanging knives from the ceiling and doing things that are way more compelling in a thoughtful way than all of us artists who have kind of found a path already. So it really is a great diverse show.
0: It is a really diverse show. Tell people where they can, where exactly this uh, space is at and where they can go to see it. Yeah.
2: So this is at 1553 Platte street in Denver. And it is in a building that's been down there for like a hundred years, such a cool building. And used to be a building that I hung out at when uh, Paris on the Platte was there. If, uh, if anybody listening knows where that is. And it's just a little bit hidden. It's kind of around the corner from the front of the building. So if anybody goes down there, just uh, wander around a little bit, and you will see some art
0: if you know where that pedestrian bridge is that goes over the highway, it's right on the side of the building there on that same side where that pre- pedestrian bridge is. So get down there and check it out. How much longer does that run for like another week or so?
2: Yeah, just another week. And then we go into the month of photography show and, uh, and that dual show with uh, me and Brett Montarazzo.
0: You are represented by a number of galleries. How many galleries represent your work
2: right now? I've got one, two, three, four, five kind of six, six galleries, I'd say. And uh, and then a, a couple other like independent curators or consultants that I work with. Um, but galleries are not one of my huge draws for income. Um, more no? of my sales, um, my own marketing, my own sort of creation of shows and things like that. It's been an interesting thing to learn that galleries have a really great place for artists, but it's not the, it's not the thing that makes an artist's career. The artist is really the one that does that.
0: So you don't get the bulk of your sales out of these galleries. How do you sell your work how how Where do you get the bulk of your sales from?
2: Um, just blind luck and throwing stones pretty much <laughs> just, um I do a lot of I do a lot of different shows like all the shows that I'm talking about with Red brick and with uh, doing the one with Brett and um and the one with Jess and it's an interesting thing uh, whenever I put up a show, I know that I'm going to make about ten thousand dollars and I'm not going to make $10,000 on that show. I'm going to make and it's not always $10,000, but that's what I always aim for. I know I'm going to make that money not because that show opened, but because I made all the work. I put it out on social media. I talked about it. People visited my studio. People did go to the show. And maybe that piece isn't maybe the pieces in that show aren't going to sell, but somebody's going to want to come to the studio and see something. Somebody's going to get online and see something. Somebody's going to see another show and see and see that I've got a history of showing and they're going to be interested in collecting. Consultants are going to come in and see that work. It's, it's such a broad range of things that actually make sales happen um, from just making sure you're getting the work out there. And it's not necessarily going to be the show that makes the sale happen. Uh, but with showing with galleries, there are amazing benefits to it. And there are amazing benefits to having that kind of interplay with a gallery director, somebody who can help you drive creatively and give you some direction in where you're exploring your work. And gallery directors should be pretty open about what they feel is working and connecting with people out there. A lot of them are very shy to do that. And, 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 you know, galleries can create amazing opportunity and amazing, uh, sales structures too. Um, but for me, I would say not more than 20% of my sales come from, come from all those galleries.
0: That's really interesting to hear. Cause I, I saw that you had gallery representation. I didn't know, you know, how many or what have you, which is why I asked that question. But I think, um, people were always under the impression that, you know, the bulk of sales comes from being in a gallery.
2: Uh, Certainly not for me. And I think for most artists, probably less than 50% of sales who are, for most artists who are showing in galleries, probably less than 50% is coming from the gallery side.
1: Do you think uh, galleries give some sense of authenticity um, to the collector? Do you think it's important? Okay.
2: And I wouldn't even call it authenticity. I'd say it's just straight up cred. It's a bit of a nerve wracking thing to spend large money on things that you are wanting to challenge you anyway. Most art today, uh, most collectors are looking for work that's challenging. And then say, I'm going to just jump in with two feet and spend thousands of dollars on something that I find challenging. And I might just be, you know, two glasses too far in to be making a good decision about it. So if I have somebody who runs a gallery and really sees this work and is seeing all kinds of work out there, um, aligning with them makes sense. And so for collectors to align with a gallery or align with, you know, a couple gallerists, to help them really explore their interest in it, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, For the artist, it gives them the cred of being able to say, yes, I am aligned with somebody who sees a lot of art, sells a lot of art, and and is very well-versed in that. So I can tell you that not only I believe that I'm really good at this, somebody who sees a lot of art will tell you I'm really good at this. And and I think that's a valid thing. I think that's actually a really, uh, really valuable thing in the whole circle of it.
0: You are born here, you grew up here, you could live in New York, you could live in LA, some other place, but you choose to still live here in Denver. How do you feel about the Denver art community?
2: Well, um, I think as far as a career move, that was not the smartest thing. <laughs> but again, you know, I don't regret any of my path. Um, I love it here. And this is one of the few places in the US that I'd wanna live. I don't think I'd wanna live in New York or LA, I spent enough time there to know that I love them, but that's not the place for me. Um, sorry, where were we?
0: <laughs> I, I was just asking how you felt about the um, Denver art community. I feel like it's pretty um, inclusive, and I feel like there's a lot of phenomenal artists that are making you know, fantastic work here.
2: That's something that I've been able to talk, talk about internationally a good bit recently, too. Just um, I started working with my teachers from Italy, Rose and Clear again a little bit with covid they started doing some zoom thing which was a little bit of an odd step for them and it allowed me to start having conversations with people all over the world and curators as well as other artists that are that are involved in that whole circle of people and really being able to talk about what's happening in colorado as far as the art community was a very interesting thing because nobody talks about their art communities the way people in colorado do um, and especially i think i do i'm really i'm really very curious about this strange phenomenon of this art community that's so uh, behind one another and really enjoys working together. And it's, I mean, uh, Coloradans are generally like this anyway. We're all here because we're happy to be here and we want to be around other people that are enjoying our environment the way we do. Um, So it's not that big of a surprise, but the arts community is like that too. Everybody's kind of behind everybody else. Everybody realizes that there's plenty of business to be done out there. And so they're not trying to steal business from anybody. They're trying to just build everybody else up because they know it builds them up. It's a very, very smart, very, very connected community of artists, and uh, and galleries for that matter, and the things that are coming out of Colorado right now. I think because, especially because of places like Redline and um, and Rocky Mountain College of Art and of Art and Design, just a couple other little pockets like that. I think there's really amazing, compelling work coming from Colorado, and it's showing up internationally as what's happening in the world. Um, you know, The levels of everything from collage, which is a huge, huge trend right now, to just highly skilled and moving back into actual skills in painting and drawing, that coming out of Colorado is becoming a really driving factor in what's happening internationally in our world.
0: And people don't realize, but Colorado has always had a rich history of artists, people that have come through here, people that lived here and created, you know, you could deep dive into it. Um, and uh, yeah, if you, if you know any, any history of Colorado and, and the art scene, there's been phenomenal people from the get-go. For sure. So there's another piece
1: that I, I really, really like. And uh, it's a diptych you did with a woman in a white dress and the bull. Oh, yeah. And I know you've done a, a number of them. The one that really touches me is where she's put her hand out and her, actually her fingers roll into the other, the other piece that the, the other, the, the bulls section, there's something there that just, I, I love the power of the bull. Cause obviously he's, he's bucking like he's at a rodeo, you know, and, her grace and that she's reaching out to, to the ball. And I, I just think it's a phenomenal piece that just says a lot. And I, I I just love looking at it. Can you talk about that piece and where that kind of came from?
2: Yeah. Um. So like you said, that's something that I've obviously explored in multiple iterations and there are two favorites. This is one of them. And uh, one of my favorite uh, collector couples owns this, And they have these two amazing kids and they have this beautiful house down uh, south of Denver. Um, This was the first piece they bought from me. So this is a theme that comes up in my work often. And it is doing exactly what I was talking about earlier of incorporating these notions of um, sort of repetitive and ancient lores and legends and things like that. And so this is my version of Leda and the Swan and and it's sort of represented in a Western vernacular almost. And the swan becomes some other object that Zeus can present himself to to Leda in. Every time I'm exploring that story, I'm exploring it with a little bit of a different twist and looking for where Leda's power is and where she gets to be in control of the story in different ways. So like I said, I have two favorites and this is one of them. My my first favorite was the first one that I'd done, which was, it's gotta be 2006, 2007. Um, and it was a Buffalo and a much more kind of just sedentary Buffalo, just standing there. And then the woman in the white wedding dress is kind of leaning back a little bit and looks like she might be in danger, but the Buffalo doesn't look like it's being dangerous. And it's a very interesting interplay. This one is playing, is definitely playing with a much more, uh, much more of a balance of confidence and, um, and her stance being almost dismissive, um, uh, but, uh, but interactive and the bull being not out of control, but definitely uh, definitely very active. There's a balance theme that comes into my work all the time and also a, a duality that comes into my work all the time. And this one has many of those things while being part of that theory base, that idea base of, uh, of playing with those ancient lores. It's something else for me personally in a lot of ways too. And for me, it's a thing that plays with the masculine feminine in a lot of ways. And the balance not only interpersonally for a single person dealing with those those aspects and the battle that happens between them, but also the societal uh, side of it, which is is a really volatile conversation in our world right now. And I find it to be a really compelling one. And so these pieces speak to all those things in a nice way at the same time. Um, and again, you know, it just starts with the visual. I knew I had to do this visually and realized that it kind of fell into all those places yet again.
1: When I look at this, even though he's exuding all the power but when you look at her she has all the power because it looks almost like she's not necessarily controlling him but she is keeping him you know from being out of control like yeah. and so she's a very powerful figure in in this piece in my in my view like i said it's just something that you know, when you look at it and you sit there with it for a little while there's a lot going on you know yeah, yeah.
2: Again, now I have to explore this again, so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love it. I I do. I love it. And I'm a sucker for a
0: buffalo, so if you ever paint a buffalo again.
2: (laughs) They always come back.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we ask this question a lot. What does it mean to be bold?
2: Definitely like the idea that I might be bold, and I don't know that I actually am because most of what I do actually feels very comfortable. I don't think I'm bold at all. I think other people might think I am but i'm always making safe choices i'm always making choices that feel very natural to me um, and then there's a flip side to that. Um, there are two things that i really that I really try to live by, and one of them is that every day I try to do something that scares me a little bit, and that's really important for me because i don't know just somebody said it one day and it sounded right to me and uh, and it really does help me to. Stay out of a place of comfort that I don't get to explore life with anymore. Whether I was making art or doing any other ridiculous job, I would want to do that. I would want to make sure that I'm exploring life in a, in a compelling way. Um, but then the other thing about being bold is I, th- I think the boldest thing an artist can do. I don't know exactly what it means to be bold. Um, and I actually do think that there's a level of it that it's just like allowing yourself to do the stupid thing. Uh, the thing that you don't think is the smart thing. Um, and hopefully you're being responsible enough about it that you're not going to hurt anybody or anything, but you know, step out and do something like that. Um, there was a really nice uh, commencement speech by Neil Gaiman uh, from quite a few years ago. And I, I like him as a speaker even more than I like him as an author because he's got this like wonderful little thing voice <laughs> and accent. Um, and one of the things that he says in there is that he kind of figured out at one point that when you're walking down the street naked, you might, just about be getting somewhere. And it's just, and I'm sure I'm misquoting that, but um, but this notion that when you've put something out and especially as an artist or as a maker of anything, when you put something out there that allows allows yourself to put the secret in front of people that you might not be ready to talk about and they might not be ready to hear, um, that's the time when when we actually do get to discover things about about our humanity and about the world and about who we are in that. And that's, that's what compelling art is. And so I'd say that's actually probably being pretty bold, is putting the things out there that, um, that scare you a little bit, that you're not sure you should put out in the world. Um, boy, that's a good question. I really like that question. I'm going to be thinking about that. Um, yeah, so I put out a lot of work that, you know, you might not recognize that it's doing that for me in a, in a bold way. And a lot of it, especially in my work that feels a little bit naughty, like the orgasm eyes and things like that. Um, those are dangerous things for me. Those are bold things for me. And they're, you know, I grew up Catholic. And so they feel like, they feel like they're naughty. They feel like they're, um, starting to expose a part of my, uh, uh thought process that seems pretty private and seems like I shouldn't be telling other people about. Um, and I like doing that for sure. And, uh, and I like the surprise that people get with that too, especially because, you know, I'm around a lot of people that have known me for a long time and they know me as that quiet person. So when they start to see things that are, uh, that are pushing that envelope there. Uh, that's a fun surprise to
0: live in the stuff. That's a little more provocative.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now I'm working on a series <laughs> and it's based on the, uh, the multiple orgasm, eyepiece, piece and it's kind of growing. And so this brings in the boxing glove, and that whole theme. When I first started working with this, with the boxing gloves and those objects, I was painting the boxing gloves and punching bags to match my skin. So they were the same skin tones and had little elements of my skin, like freckles or whatever. And that whole series, the pieces were either called this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, or this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me just depending on whatever felt right for the piece at the time. So this one is my uh, bed fight series and they're all orgasm lips and orgasm eyes. And, uh, and they're just subtly that Um, this one's still in, in the works and I haven't quite gotten it there. Um, And then some of them will have just like subtle areas of pink in the little, sort of hole created there or the entire thumb will go pink and, and just try to hint at being these objects of, uh, of sort of uh, naughty sexuality or naughty things that we're not supposed to talk about in society in so many ways. Um, And so this is a series that's definitely leaning towards playing with that idea. Things that I'm not supposed to talk about things that are supposed to be private or, or just feel a little bit bold to put out there, to put out there in the world.
0: The whole sex taboo thing. That's a very American thing. Don't you think?
2: Oh, it's so American. It's It's so crazy, right? I know. I mean, uh, yeah, more so than ever in my life, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of dealing with just being frustrated by how pent up Americans are about this stuff. And, you know, when you and I met Todd, uh, we were talking this and I have, uh, I have just the most hilarious experiences in my history. And when I was living in Italy, there was a point at which I was... Um, I was dating a series of married women who this was, you know, their husbands were dating, were dating uh, other women and like, this is how they lived. And it was so natural and so normal. And it was to the point where like these women were actually sort of taking care of me financially a little bit and it was amazing and it was great and it was perfect and it made perfect sense. And yeah, Americans are really pretty buttoned up about stuff like that. It's a way more natural part of our lives than, than we in the West let let it be sort of be talked about for sure. And then everybody's not talking about it and pretending like they're uh, like, they're so chaste and pure and they're all, you know, going home and getting out their whips and chains and stuff anyway. So, right.
1: right. <laughs> yeah. 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 There is a French photographer, and I can't. I was trying to find her name, and I can't. And uh, she's has some really interesting work. But she she did a whole series where she was actually um, women would masturbate and come to an orgasm, and then she would photograph their face. And they were clothed. There wasn't any real nudity, but it was there were they were flushed because they had just orgasmed. And then I see there's a Brazilian photographer doing something very similar, and. Uh, I think that's being bold and in, in an idea as well. So
2: yeah, now you're giving me new ideas.
1: <laughs> right. Right. I love you. I love that whole boxing thing. You know, that whole, you know, I think that's a great piece, and I didn't make that connection, you know, looking at the images, but yeah, I love yeah. that. That's, that's a great idea.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in that theme for somebody who hasn't really done much boxing in their life. That's something that is really a compelling theme for me, not only because of spectacle of it but also because of the bodies that are involved that everybody's in such great shape and they look great um but also like i have a very personal interest in the physical experience of not only hitting but more so being hit like there's something about that that i really like that that it really feels like the most human animal moments for me and so that's a theme that really comes to my work in a very visceral way
0: it's crazy. I, I have this infatuation with boxing gloves and the equipment that goes along with it. And I've thought about doing a photographic series, um, exploring that, but it's been done a million times. Um, not by you, Todd, but not by you, but not by me. Um, how did you glom onto that whole thing? I mean, it's an interesting theme.
2: It is an interesting theme. Um, the, so I started two pieces when I started the gladiator piece. Um, it was that one, and it was another piece, and I used I used a reference for the other piece. So a lot of the time, I don't use references for my work; it's all from my head. Um, actually, I used a reference for the gladiator too because I couldn't get her boobs right. So it's one of those things that I think I don't know how to draw because I don't have them. Um, I started two pieces at that point, and for some reason, it was just again that kind of aesthetic draw to deal with uh, to deal with people with boxing gloves and. So it was the Gladiator. And then the other one ended up being what I called idealized self-portrait just after an ass kicking. And that one, you couldn't even see the boxing gloves. But, uh, but this drawing, um, I kind of messed it up a lot. It was this guy who was in clearly better shape than me and didn't really look that much like me. So the idealized self-portrait. But it was the idea that like I did, I did this drawing wanting to have a sense of the feeling of having gotten the black eye and having the feeling of having the bloodied mouth and the bruises all over my body. Um, and so I made that drawing kind of looking for that, uh, looking for those physical moments and the drawing really looks like somebody had those physical moments and like to be able to feel that through drawing, it was a really interesting experience. Boy, I need to get back to that too. Come on, you guys are, <laughs> for some reason, part of it wasn't working. So I cut off the bottom half where you don't even see that he's a boxer other than the hint of his boxing shorts and the fact that he's got these, you know, black and white drawing clearly gotten his ass kicked just two very interesting pieces. And so from there it just grew. And, um, and I let that boxing theme kind of just sit in my head. Well, and then on top of that, sometimes things just appear in my life and it seems like I should do something with them. And in this case, a pair of boxing gloves, just appeared in my studio, one of my friends brought them in and just left. And so I painted them to match my skin tone. And then again, with the ones that I just showed you, uh, one of my friends had these boxing gloves that he had done this charity project with. And he was just like, you want these? And there's like 15 pairs of them. And I was like, sure. And then I realized that I knew exactly what I was going to want those for. And so it's just sort of this collaboration with the universe and other people around me where these things appear and I'm just supposed to work with them.
0: That's awesome. I love that, that ideology that sometimes the universe just gives you stuff and you just got to be open to it. You know, yeah. you don't necessarily have to just process it on the spot, but just be open enough that okay, now I have these boxing gloves and I'm kind of curious about boxing or boxing gloves and the yeah. whole idea behind it. And
2: yeah, it's the thing with that building downtown and even in my studio now, just how all those things come together. And it's just because, I don't know, it just seemed like it was supposed to, and it did.
0: Talk about this studio space. You have a beautiful studio space. and oh, yeah. And you've been doing um, open studios like once a month, right? You and uh, Annie?
2: It's about once every month and a half. Um, okay. And part of that's because, um, I just need to work more. And so I try not to spend too much time doing things like that, but, um, so that's the studio and it's a hundred year old, uh, dairy that is on 17th, right in front of city park. And the space that I'm in, you saw those little archways and I'm pretty sure the archways were the cow stalls, uh, cause the cows were apparently on this floor. The horse went, uh, on the, on the lower floor where Annie's studio is. And when you look at the historic photographs of this street, and I'm right in front of City Park, so there are plenty of them. The, the grade of the street was about six feet lower than it is now. And so they built up the whole neighborhood in a weird way where the, uh, where the ground is six feet taller than the, or higher than it was 100 years ago. Uh, but the building is just beautiful. It was kind of stripped out maybe 10 years ago. And a lot of the walls were just left as the studs and kind of the construct of the walls. And you see some of the plaster and stuff. And it really, you know, visually reminds me a lot of a lot of the places that I spent in Italy. Um, my main studio there was in Tuscany outside of Florence. And that was a, I think it was a thousand year old. Uh, it was at least 500 years old. And it was, a, it had been a, a fortress and then it turned into the winemaking facility for the vineyard where I was. And it just has that same feel to it. It has a feel that other people have been here and that uh, something's supposed to happen here. I'm not here because it's pretty. It just happened to be pretty because we get to be here. And yeah, it has all this history to it. It's really cool.
0: I want to ask you what your definition of an artist is.
2: I really like that question. And I think about that a lot um, because I'm a snot about it. I'm, I'm definitely an elitist about it in a lot of ways. And I am happy to be that elitist about it because I really do believe that everybody should have something in their life that they engage in, in an elite way. And whether that's accounting or cooking or gambling or whatever stupid thing you're into, whether it's stupid art or stupid um, being a lawyer or whatever, do it at the elite level. And so being an artist is just, you know, for one thing, the choice of how I've and how so many other people have decided to engage in the world. Um, But really, an artist is anybody who makes anything that they find to be an exploration of the materials and a reflection of who they are in the world. And it can be professional, it can be amateur, and it can be any of those things. And none of them are really better than the other. And I understand why some art communicates better with society overall. And I understand why some of it's more aesthetically pleasing than, uh, than other art. But none of it's more valid than anything else. Um, and I will be the first to tell you when somebody makes a painting and it's just crap. But, uh, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't have made the painting. It doesn't mean that the exploration of that thing and the exploration of that material wasn't just as important as my exploration of mine. Just sometimes people give me money for mine and that's lovely. Um, good art is important, but making art is way more important than whether it's good or not.
0: How do you feel about the, um, the kind of work that you see in the modern age these days? Do you feel good about what's going on in the art world? We talked about the Denver community and it being supportive, but outside of that, on the world scale or world level of art, do you think we're doing a good job?
2: Yes and no. I, you know, I think there's a lot of really good art happening. Um, on the no side, though, there's a couple things happening. And one of them is that a lot of people have figured out the formula of being, of being a cool artist, you know? <laughs> they, uh, and you look at a lot of these very famous artists and they've got the formula down. They know how to make something that is going to, uh, going to grab onto people and starts to feel plastic. When things start to feel plastic, it means that they start to feel they're a permanent temporary thing in this world. Like they're permanent because that stuff never goes away, but it's not important in the use that it, that it was introduced for very long. And so all these very famous artists have got their formula down and they start to repeat the thing over and over and it stops being an exploration form and and they go in the safe direction. And unfortunately we see a ton of that art. And so a lot of people looking at art who do so in a way that they're not looking at, at art constantly, take that as the sign of good art and although technically it might be good, there's something that happens with really great art that it goes beyond just seeing it. And it really relates the feeling of the human behind it in some way or another. And there's 10 or 10,000 different ways you could do that, but there's definitely several different ways that that comes through. Um, So it's a little bit disheartening to see that so much good, but not great art, is the driver for... Uh, for the highest percentage of the populace understanding what's going on in art today and then at the same time we have these systems where a lot of really great artists and artists who are making things out of all of the emotional connection to it the fear the the joy and the and the uh and the kind of desperate need to explore and those artists are getting a lot of voice in the world because of instagram Uh, because of Facebook a little bit, and because of some other social media platforms and electronic platforms. And it's a very interesting thing. Um, So overall, how is art going in the world today? I don't know. I mean, I can't really say that it's going well or not well. I think that there are some great artists making some great things. And the most magical thing is that we are still in a world where some people get to just make things for their lives. And I think that that's probably the most beautiful part of it.
0: What do you think about bananas taped to a wall?
2: I love that. And the things that I love about it are that actually this guy made a pretty good looking presentation of bananas taped to a wall. Like if you look at that as a formal presentation of bananas taped to a wall, he rocked it. He did a good job. I love that it's this small object on this big wall and it kind of doesn't fit. And it, and it drives our sense of uh, composition and even color composition in a really interesting way. And he used one of my favorite materials, duct tape. <laughs>
1: I was just going to point that out to you.
2: Yeah. Um, but I also really like how clearly absurd it is and how clearly absurdly it was taken on. And that at the same time, this institution that takes itself so seriously could pretend like it's still taking itself seriously while everybody was laughing and not only themselves, but everything else about the whole system. And it's so great that, that we can like, Take this multi-billion-dollar industry and just be jackasses sometimes. I mean, how awesome is that? And this stupid artist got to make this thing and make a ton of money off of just like this very bold creative notion for a minute. And how wonderful is that? Um, and then the other artist who ate the bananas—I love that. I mean, how cool is that that uh, that he got to destroy art without actually destroying anything of value in the art? It's just—it's just. It's just the perfect storm of art idiocy coming together to actually be a compelling conversation.
1: Yeah. It's, it, I just watched a documentary about Banksy. And uh, one thing I forgot he had done is he, you know, went into an art, art gallery and um, used that sticky tape and pushed his art up against the wall, pressed it there and put a little artist statement beside it and walked away. And it's just like, you know, and with the, on mindset is like, my my shit is as good as what's hanging in this mu- this uh, yep. museum right now.
2: Yeah, and it turns out that his work is more important than a lot of that work, um, right? Because of what it does, it connects to people in a way that's outside of the museum, outside of curation. Um, it connects with people in a pretty in a pretty raw way, you know, because it is very direct imagery, um, and he uses a little bit of comedy and he uses a little bit of uh, a little bit of sap to. Uh, to have compelling conversations and compelling ideas throughout the world. Um, but I think what he's doing is super important.
0: Yeah. Art's not going to always resonate with everybody, right? Your work's never going to be loved by everyone, but there's a certain segment of the population that it will resonate with. And those are the people that you do it for, right?
2: Yeah. But if you're making good art, even if it doesn't resonate with people, they should be able to recognize that thing of beauty and a thing of kind of worth looking at that's that point where being the elite really does matter because you've got to make things that are worth taking the time to explore worth taking the time to look at that thing and that thoughtfulness uh, or just the the dumb luck of being able to draw from the from the get-go and paint from the get-go really comes into play Um, but you know I had a really interesting experience I'd say probably 10 years ago I was walking around Denver Art Museum and it was right after the Logan building was put up and uh security guards were walking around and one of them went in, like went into a little corner that was pretty hard to find and there was a kind of banksy situation there somebody had put this weird little sculpture on the floor and put a tag up right next to it and had their own private guerrilla moment of having an art piece there and the art piece i don't remember if it was good or not uh but the spectacle that came from it of guards in their blue jackets running up to this space and like all treating it like I was, it was some sort of explosive it was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. So that was, that was really fun. I love in the museum when everything goes awry. that's
0: <laughs> oh, That sounds wonderful, man. That would have been fun to, to see in person.
2: Yeah. And I, it took me years to even register that I had seen something cool and finally access that memory again. And I was like, Oh crap. You know, somebody and I wasn't really paying attention good enough to really take it in but at least I have a moderate memory of it.
0: So you have this daughter that's exploring art and she sold her first piece what kind of advice would you give to her if she's considering doing this full time and having an art life?
2: Um that's a really good question and one that I've thought about very carefully and the first thing that I decided to do when I saw her kind of exploring that way and actually my older daughter too she was She's playing with it a little bit, but she's a very different person. Um, and she is just one of the most amazing kids I've ever met, my, my older daughter. My younger daughter just feels like she's me, just she's a girl and she's 12. And, um, and so it's, it's such an interesting balance. But um, one of the things that I, I really recognized when my younger daughter started making things and making things with that obsessive nature that I've got, and I could see me in her doing that, I thought back to how that path worked for me. And one of the things that I realized was that my parents didn't get in the way. They, um, they tried to get me some of the things that I needed, but otherwise just kind of let me go. And that, that, and I realized that that was super important for me. so for the most part, I've just stayed out of her way. Um, I have made sure to get her all the supplies she needs and having my studio, the way I have it, like she can have anything she needs. She can have a hundred canvases and she can just get to work. And, um, and I think a lot of artists want to like 50% of being an artist is just having the paint. Yeah, like if you've got paint, you're going to be able to make something. And so get the paint. Um, so I made sure that she had all the tools that she needs to make what she wants to make. And she didn't just make uh, painting and drawing, although she's very, very good at both of those things already. Um, I'm a little bit angry that she's better than I was better than I was at that age, but whatever, I'll get over it. Um, but she sews. She's really, really drawn to sewing. And so, when she was about eight or nine, she really wanted to start sewing a lot. And so she's like, "Dad, I need a sewing machine." So I said, okay, great. And then she's like, "How do I use it?" Gosh, <laughs> like, shit! I got to learn how to use a sewing machine. So I had to like get myself all versed on using a sewing machine so that I could help her get started on it. And then she took it. She took it over from there, and she knows everything about a sewing machine now. Um, and she started making dresses and making all kinds of things. And you know. Maybe a year and a half ago, she was in homeschool. She didn't like the school shoes. So she decided to do homeschool. She was terrible at it. Um, But one week, she just kind of disappeared for the whole week and went upstairs to a room and then comes downstairs at the end of the week wearing a full-on, like, pretty accurate Victorian gown she had made. (laughs) And and really, really well made. And it fit her properly and everything. And both my wife and I were like, well, holy shit. Apparently, you've learned something. (laughs) So, (laughs) So good vacation, I guess. And, uh, but yeah, it's really just staying out of her way. And when she has something that she wants to learn from me or wants to, uh, wants to explore with me, I'm totally up for that. But otherwise I want to just make sure that she knows that she can watch what I'm doing and learn from it and she can watch what I screw up on and hopefully learn from that too and not do those things. And, um, and otherwise that it's her path. It's not mine that what she takes from it, she has the potential to, use me as a good example of a lot of different things, Um, but she has the potential to be so far beyond what I am. And if I try to plug her into how I do things, then I'm the limit and that's not okay. And boy, do I hope that she gets to explore that. And I'll definitely help her with business stuff. as She gets older if she wants to really build all that stuff. And, you know, those are, those are just boring systems to make sure you have a, a good way to make money and keep money rolling and all those, and all those things. But as far as being an artist, it's really, I just want to watch her. And that's the coolest
0: thing. That is cool. That's, you know, I think that's really important. Like you said, just getting out of their way and then just being supportive of them and letting them do their thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, Is there any piece of advice that was given to you business or otherwise that you've kind of carried with you through the years as an artist?
2: It might be kind of funny, but most of my best advice came from, (laughs) came from me. (laughs) A lot of things like, Um, the mantras that I have to kind of that I have to kind of obsessively repeat in my head. And one of them is just get, uh, get the fucking work done. That's what I say to myself every morning is just get the fucking work done. And I have to be really hard on myself to make sure that I'm pushing myself and talking to myself in a mean way uh, because there's a lot to get done. And not only is there a lot to get done for business, but I want to find a place in my life where I've actually made something that I feel really belongs in the world in longevity and, and it's a stamp of our time. It's a stamp of me in the world, and I haven't done it yet. And hopefully, I will figure out how to do that in the next forty years.
0: This whole art life thing is really a journey, right? It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um,
2: it's a marathon with a lot of sprints in it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very- I mean, I don't think you ever feel like you arrived if you're truly working hard and, and pushing yourself yeah. out of your comfort zone, right?
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with some artists that I kind of follow that are, are pretty famous, um, the ones that I'm interested in would say kind of exactly that. And a few friends at pretty big places in the art world where they're incredibly successful and in making tons of money. And they kind of don't want to talk about that ever. They want to talk about what's going on with the work and they want to talk about how to figure out how to make something better. And those are the artists that I want to be around. And that's actually, I think that's the kind of artist that I am. It's somebody who never wants to feel like I've gotten there. As soon as I, as soon as I've gotten there, I think I'm done.
0: What kind of things do you do to promote your work? Obviously you have gallery representation, but you talked about, you know, getting on the phone and talking with people. Are those, are those your collectors making them aware of new work that you've, um, I should be doing that.
2: (laughs) I'm terrible about self-promotion. It makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, But at the same time, it makes me really happy when I get a call, a collector who I know has been looking for something that I've been working on and kind of be like, Hey, this is kind of done. You want to come see it? And I'm really very skittish about those conversations. I don't know why I'm pretty, Easygoing about everything else, and um, and so yeah, there's self promotion like that, or there's promotion like that, but there's all kinds of different ways to do it. I've got to do, I've got to be putting my work out there in a public way, all the time. And even with COVID, I was figuring out ways to to put my work in places where people would see it, whether it's in um, galleries or other kinds of shows like tent shows, or um, which I kind of there's I have a love hate with tent shows. Or, um, or museums, or on a street corner, or down some alley, or if my mom's refrigerator is gonna have a lot of audience that week, we'll put some things up on that. Whatever is going to work to put art in front of people, it's the most important thing. And that's, I mean, artists have two jobs and they don't realize it all the time. One is to make the work, and the other one is to show the work. If you're making good work and you're showing it to enough people, you're gonna make money, you're gonna sell, you're gonna have a career. Um, so I use every tool I've got, uh, I've got in front of me. I've, I use social media, um, and I think that's been a really effective grower of my audience. Um, and I think, and I think it's, got, it's got a very valid voice in this time. It does reduce things to the Instagram square, which is weird. It takes some of the life out of seeing things in real life. But at the same time, it allows for a broad audience. It is changing the way we see work. Uh, it's really interesting to see how people are glomming onto the aesthetic of Instagram and their work and making things so they know it'll look good on, on those formats. Um, it's, it's definitely a shift in the art world. And I don't think it's a bad one. And then other things are just, you know, every, every opportunity I get, I'm putting my work in front of people in some way or another, whether it's going into a, a public collection in a hotel or something, um, going to be in like maybe a little magazine verb. And I don't go after those a lot, but uh, I do get, nice opportunities for those. Um, I would definitely say that the biggest thing I do is make sure that I have some event or another where people are going to be coming and seeing my work physically every month, at least one, uh, at least one a month, uh, sometimes two. Um, rarely more than that. Cause it gets tiring. Even during COVID I had um, the one major thing that I did during COVID was working with Leon gallery, which is a gallery I've been, I've worked with on and off here in Denver for I don't know, maybe six years now. And when everything kind of shut down, you know, they shut down along with it and kind of just stopped their programming and put it all on hold. And then they started thinking, okay, we want to actually activate our windows, activate the gallery space in some way that it allows artists to do something. And so there were three of us that did projects. One was Jared Anderson. He's a good friend of mine. And he just kind of did this weird video of sort of, he's, he's a little bit uh, process driven, just kind of like, funky artist. And so we did a weird video of all that and put it out <laughs> in the world. And then what I did was what I called isolation collaboration. And so it was, when was that maybe May of last year? So it was getting warm and it was nice enough to interact with people outside the window. And so what I did was I scheduled appointments with about 25 people over a two week period and had them come down meet me at the gallery and they would sit outside the window and I'd sit inside the window so that we stayed isolated. And the idea was to have some sort of collaborative notion going on um, and either make things together or have them just sit for a portrait. But one of the things that I left in place was limitation of not being able to properly communicate through a window. And so we'd have to kind of figure out through whatever gestures or kind of yelling and not really and like muffled yelling at each other or whatever it would be, how we were going to collaborate, how we were going to create a piece of art or multiple pieces of art if they were making art as well. To to do this process, and it was so interesting, not only to get back into the world in a way that I was around other people, but still uh, safe, especially in a time when we didn't know that much about COVID, and to be dealing with the limitations created by the need to isolate in so many ways. Most of the work that I made ended up being uh, just large large format portraits of the people that I was working with. And Like I said, I did about 25. And just really fun drawings of the actual people sitting there. And um, Something I mentioned before, I don't usually use reference for my work. It comes kind of it comes kind of out of my head and then just kind of builds and becomes becomes a thing looking like the thing I'm intending to look like um, just somehow. But these were actually portraits of these people and they actually look like them, which I was kind of surprised by and uh, pleasantly so. And it was a really, really interesting process. I'm always getting out there and making sure that I'm putting work out there in some way that people are going to see it.
0: That's a fantastic concept. And it's cool that you were able to come up with this process to kind of, once again, kind of push you out of your your normal routine and out of your comfort zone a little bit, right? Yeah. I assume that when you have these openings, you try to be there in person. How important is the connection for you between yourself and a potential art buyer or one of your collectors?
2: So another really compelling question for me, and that's a compelling question because one of the things that I worry about in the world is that when I go out and talk about my work and I'm in front of it or in front of people, I think I have I think I think have a nice level of kind of charm and charisma about doing that. And so often I worry that people are wanting to buy into me as an artist rather than buying the art because the art is compelling enough to do that. But that's kind of an aside. That's just one of the weird worries that I have. Um, as far as me being there for the opening, I think it's super important. Um, and it does go back to when people collect art and especially when they're starting to collect art. And I think I'm starting to kind of get to a point where people are taking my art very seriously in a way that they feel like it's part of the cultural conversation. And so they're wanting to collect art that does that. And they feel like looks like that art, but then they want to understand the artist as well. And they want to understand who the artist is in being in that conversation of the culture and being in that conversation of our society and of art in general as a, as a cultural movement. Um, so I think me being there and having a conversation with people and allowing them not only see that my art has, or kind of talk about that, the fact that my art has a background to it that is very thoughtful, even if it's not, uh, even, even if I don't have a clear, clear definition to it, it's a thoughtful exploration. But also being able to see that I'm a person who isn't just like talking about art in a way that see so many artists sort of making up a way of talking about art that sounds like art. And I don't do that. I just talk about me and I talk about the work and I talk about the world uh, the way a normal person does. And I think them seeing that helps them to realize that, uh, that my art might be a compelling thing, but that it's a very permanent thing. That I am a very permanent part of making this art, and that it's just kind of a reflection of me, because my art feels that way too. Like it's just my voice, at least to me, it does. Well, if I'm totally wrong.
0: You know, I think your art is. You know, I already said that I I think it's phenomenal, but I it's genuine. You know, and yep. and a friend told me a long time ago. Um, he collected art. He collected. Uh, modern furniture and anything else that resonated with him. He's kind of a, he was kind of a picker and he's like, you know, you don't need to know everything about everything, right? When you see something good, you know it. And I think that's to be said with everybody, the general populace, when they, when they see something good, it will resonate with them and they will know it. They'll go, this is, this is good stuff. Even if they don't know anything about art, they'll look at it and go, that's good. I like that.
2: And as an artist and somebody who looks at a lot of art, the most compelling art I see is art that doesn't usually fall into the category of what I know or what I feel is good. It's art that I look at and I'm like, I shouldn't like that, but it's good. I think you do have a, a very human response to work when it's just good.
0: How do you go about pricing your work? And I, and I know for a lot of artists it's all over the board, but do you have any kind of, um, advice or a way, a method, a formula that you go about pricing work?
2: I do, kind of. And my prices have gone up recently for no other reason than they felt like they should. I don't know why. It just felt like it was time to raise my prices a little bit and make these things that I make feel like they're being bought with more of a value structure behind them, which has both a good and a bad bad feeling to it. Like Sometimes people can't afford the work because of that. And I I always cheat a little bit and I'm like, I'll give you a deal. Don't tell people I said that. (laughs) 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 But for the most part, like my work is worth what it's worth, Uh, is worth what it's worth. And people will pay that amount for it. I don't know why. Anyway, um, it's the way I've always priced my work. And it's the way that I suggest to students who always ask that question or the people that I do the art business seminar with, they ask how to price their work. And especially early on as an artist, you should price your work based on a feeling. And that feeling is, how much money would it make sense for me to have in my pocket that I'm not going to terribly miss this thing? Because when you're not making that much work, those things are way more precious to you. And so how much money would it take for me to feel good about not having this thing in my life anymore? As you do that a couple of times and you start to sell more work, you'll start to see that like your work does have that value. So if you, if you say a thousand dollars would make it make sense for me to not have this painting in my life. And then you make 10 more paintings and all of a sudden everybody's giving you a thousand dollars and you're like, Hey, I think I can make $2,000 on this painting. And so it just kind of builds and you have a a bit of a natural uh, escalation of your pricing until it gets to a point where it feels like the right place and enough people buy it at whatever $5,000, whatever that thing is. Um, And it's just not, it's not like it's going off the shelves like hotcakes because then you'd be producing a new painting every day and uh, making $5,000 a day. And, you know, you just kind of figure out the balance of it. Um, And that said, I've kind of just found a place where, paintings of a certain size are always about this price. Drawings of a certain size are always about that price. And every once in a while I'll make something and I'm, and it's something for me that I'm either like either this isn't for sale at all, or if somebody wants it, they're going to have to pay me a lot of money. And so every once in a while I'll have some painting that I just love and I'll price it way high and they don't usually sell that high. And that's fine with me because I kind of want to keep that in my life. Mm
0: -hmm. Where does your work start and what does it go up to as far as pricing?
2: Um, for, for the kind of base of things, like the book drawings that I was showing you and some smaller drawings, those are usually around $400 and maybe get up to a thousand. And then, uh, some of the larger drawings are between, I say seven, 800 and maybe up to 3000 for the really big ones. And the big drawings, some of them are huge. Um, I've been producing drawings lately that are, uh, that are about, um, eight by eight feet. And so those get up, those get up more in the four and $5,000 range. There's not a ton of those. For paintings, the smallest ones are usually around a thousand. There's a couple smaller ones that are a little bit less, uh, but usually somewhere around a thousand. And then for most of my work, which ranges from about two by two feet to about four by four feet, those go from 3,500 at the low end to about 7,000 at the high end. And then for some of the bigger pieces, like the, the big piece that was down at, uh, wild wild show and is now up in Aspen for that new show. That one was seven and a half by eleven feet and that's twenty-three thousand. And it was fun to put twenty three thousand on a painting. I've never had a twenty three thousand dollar (laughs) painting (laughs) before.
0: I also saw on your website, I don't know if you're still doing this or not, do you do it looks like you do limited edition prints? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are priced at 120 bucks.
2: They are, those prices are about to go up too. Um, I, keep the li- I keep the editions pretty limited. And limited edition prints are, are sort of the, I don't know, they're sort of the dirty little secret of the art world. It's a great way to make money as an artist. And it's also a great way because a lot of my art has sold now and I kind of, I do miss things once they're gone. So I always make a print so that I still have a really good reproduction of that thing. But yeah, prints are weird. I love them and I hate them because they're not the real thing, but then they allow the real thing or something very real to go out there in the world. But yeah, those sell anywhere from, uh, I think they're going to be starting at about $160 now after, um, after the next few months, and going up to about four or 500 depending on the size of them. Uh, but the one, I'm doing a huge print of the one that I was just talking about, uh, the 23000 dollars piece, and I think that's priced at like 1400 bucks. and it's actually three huge panels of the three huge panels of that painting. So I'm actually really excited to see that as a print, and, uh, and maybe even do a print that I can work into further.
0: Wow. Cool. Do You think it's pretty, um, we talked to a lot of artists that, you know, they, they're successful and one of the re- ways that they are successful is that they offer something for everyone. So even if you can't afford a $3,000 painting, they have something like a print that they offer people and that way they kind of cover all their bases. You yeah. think that's pretty important?
2: Well, I think each artist has to figure out their own sort of structure for what they're doing. Um, I've got one friend Diego who, who didn't do that until recently. And, uh, and it was a really weird thing to see him do because he went through this whole process of getting his masters and starting to make really compelling work. And he, there's so much about him reminds me of the track. So he just wasn't worried about making money with his work. And he made these huge paintings, uh, like eight by 16 feet paintings. And I think his low end price on these things were 50,000 bucks. And he had never sold a thing and but the paintings you could tell like like we were talking about you could just tell they were good and so all of a sudden one sells and then another one sells and then the curator from one of the museums comes in and he gets to show at the museum um he talked him talking about that was hilarious because he was like yeah i didn't do anything for me (laughs) um and then he got into crystal bridges and then they bought a significant piece from them uh for about one hundred fifty thousand, and so he's making great money as an artist, selling very few things and just very monumental pieces. And then the last show he did, he totally took a step back and he actually did want to make things that were very accessible to a larger number of people. And he made, it, he made a show with like a hundred little things in it and then one or two big, well actually quite a few big pieces too. But he pretty much sold out the show um, by having these pieces that were super expensive. So a really interesting model. I think I'd say more artists than me included, have a huge range. Uh, where we do have work that's very accessible and, um, and really is purchasable by anybody and can get out there in the world that way. And I do think that's important.
0: You talked about earlier how COVID kind of stopped you in your tracks for a little bit. And we've talked to a number of, of artists that, you know, when they were trying to figure out how they were going to pivot this year, they experienced the same thing. They just didn't know like, hey, what am I going to do now? Type of thing. Did you have a lot of shows that were canceled last year?
2: Oh, yes. Um, it was a really interesting shift in how I was doing business. And I was very, very lucky in the timing of everything for a couple things. And one was that I'd worked so hard in 2019 to try to, ch- to, try to achieve kind of my max income to that, to that point. I really wanted to get to where I was making six figures. And finally I did. And holy shit, did it kick my ass. And then right then when I was starting to realize how much it burned me out and how much I didn't think I could continue on in that kind of push, COVID hit and I got a vacation <laughs> and, <laughs> and it could have been better. And I also really wanted to step back and start re-exploring the themes and look at my work and, uh, and it allowed me to do that. And so I really kind of shut down and, uh, and the studio that I was in at that point, we had to look at our finances and look at our projected incomes, um, with the people that I shared that studio with and we all decided, you know, we are not sure that we're going to make any money this year. So we got to shut this down. We shut down the, the whole studio complex and, um, and it felt really good to just step back and reconsider. Um, and then something really strange happened and people just started calling and getting in touch with me and wanting things and, um, and a lot. And I ended up having a better year last year than I could ever have thought would have happened. And just from very individual connections. Um, And then by the end of the year, we started to have enough sort of event momentum. And as artists, we started to figure out ways to put work out into the world that wasn't people physically being there, but, uh, but seeing good renditions of it. And things started to grow a little bit. And now by the beginning of this year, everybody's starting to understand how to socially distance and, uh, and manage what we can manage of this whole situation that we're at right now. It's going to change again soon um, in a way that artists have figured out ways to get their work out there. And way, way more collectors are taking that very seriously, I think, for two reasons. And one, because... Uh, as a society, we haven't used our disposable income as disposably for many, many months. You know, we just haven't been out in the world buying martinis and, and coffee and uh, and dessert every night uh, like we had been before. Um, but also, people started to realize that they needed that cultural connection still, and there weren't many other ways to do that than TV. And one of the ways to do it was to really engage yourself in looking at art, and and it started people really wanting to participate in the culture of supporting art and buying art and having that work around them. And so it's really shifted how people are seeing the value of art in their lives. And I mean, what a strange, valuable thing to have in the world is COVID for artists. But most artists I've talked to have had an experience similar to that.
0: We can say the same thing. Almost everyone to a T said that last year was one of the best years ever for them as far as sales are concerned. And, and how you explained it, I think, was perfect. I think that's you're right on the money as far as, you know, people had more disposable income. They wanted beautiful things to look at because they're stuck at home and they want a connection with art in general. So, yeah.
2: yeah. So, strange, a strange blessing.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: Break. <laughs> I got to have a vacation, a break. <laughs> and I need.
0: And, and you know what? We heard that from a lot of artists too that it made them kind of slow down, um, kind of, you know, recalibrate, reevaluate what's going on in their lives and how they do stuff. And as a whole, it's been a positive. So there's definitely, you know, some really great positive things that have come out of this past year. And talking with um, all these different artists, they all kind of agree that when this is all said and done, you're going to see like a bit of a renaissance of sorts, because everybody's been, you know, stuck in their spaces creating in their own little worlds and that you're going to see some amazing art when this is all said and done.
2: One of the things that I don't think, I don't even think a lot of artists have caught up with the realization of it yet, but almost across the board, uh, everybody I've talked to sort of stepped back and started to create for themselves again and stopped creating for a market. Um, Even as much as we all still always do that. Um, but really started to create for themselves again and also started to slow down and hone their skill set, do things like just sketch, do things like just make a painting because they wanted to make a painting. And the level of artwork that I'm seeing come from so many artists has just jumped in a in a strange way that so many artists have found this new plateau because they were able to have that time of breathing and, uh, and definitely a very valuable thing, yeah.
0: Man, we've taken up a bunch of your time today and I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to to, to set this time aside away from your work when you're on a deadline for the show in Aspen and uh, away from your family on a Sunday afternoon. So thank you so much for, for spending the time that, that you did with us today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you guys very much. And again, you know, it's been a, such an interesting conversation to start thinking about things that like, I don't get to have these conversations that often where people are talking to me about why my work is compelling to them and hearing that and kind of rethinking that work again is so important and re-exploring the theme and the look of those things. So thank you guys very, very much.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, like I said, I love your stuff and I've been looking at it for the past week or so and, and uh it's really phenomenal the thing the one thing I, that you said today that I, I definitely take away is that whole cultural connection and how people are doing that and i think that's so important and dead on and i just never framed it in that that term so that i'll take that with me
2: <laughs> that's yours you got that right.
0: <laughs> thank you so um, much thank you michael's website is mdowlingstudio.com i will have that in the episode notes this week along with his instagram which is at michael dowling studio Um, check out his instagram check out his website the work is just phenomenal the show in aspen you said it opens on march 4th right Mm -hmm. and runs for two months and that is at red brick yes so if you're in the Aspen area, go out to Red Brick and check out the phenomenal work of Michael Dowling and Annie DeCamp, right? Yes. For The Tenant Podcast, I'm Todd Pearson. And I'm Wes Brown. Have, Have a great, great week. week. Hey, The Tenant Podcast has a media sponsor. It's a new sponsor for us, and we're really appreciative of new magazine. That's in you. New Magazine. There is a national version of New, and they are around different markets around the United States, but there's also one here in Denver, a Denver issue, a Denver version. It's New Denver Magazine. And if you're looking for them on Instagram, it's N-U-E underscore D-E-N-V-E-R underscore magazine you can find them on Instagram there's a link to it i'll also have a link up on our facebook page where you can go directly there and flip through the the various articles they highlight fashion and art and if you flip through the first five or six pages you'll see our ad in there for our podcast and you'll see our mugs, Wes and I's mugs. You sent me the link to
1: the, the Denver issue and oh my God, that's a nice, that's well put together. It really looked nice and God dang, our mugs look good in there. If you got friends and family, share it with them so they can see us and then they can subscribe to our podcast. But that magazine is well put together. I really enjoyed uh, perusing the pages.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful photography, great articles. So support your local new publication. You might have heard of them in your market. If you're in Denver, check out the the link on our Facebook page, and you can see our ad. And you know what, Wes? If what would be great is if our listeners took a moment, and when you go to listen to our podcast this week, if you could take a moment and rate and review us that would be really helpful for us as far as uh, getting the word out as far as tenant is concerned.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to broaden our listenership. And we really appreciate everybody that's listening. And if you can share it and rate us, and it just helps with our numbers, and uh, we'll get more great sponsors like New Magazine.
0: Well said. So support New Magazine. That's N-U-E. And we appreciate your support for the Tenant Podcast.